On February 20th of 2013, the world was shocked by video footage of snipers firing on protesters in Kiev, Ukraine. 21 people were murdered, and it was widely assumed that President Viktor Yanukovych and his supporters were behind the attacks. However, a phone conversation between EU foreign policy chief Kathy Ashton and Estonia's foreign minister Urmas Payet, which was leaked to the public on March 5th, reveals that the snipers were actually from the new coalition government, and that Western diplomats knew this and covered it up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that he has some sort of, how to say, trust among all these Maidan people and, and civil society. And second, what was quite disturbing, the same Olga told that, well, all the evidence shows uh, that people who were killed by snipers from both sides, among policemen and, and people from the streets, that they were the same snipers killing people from both sides. Well, that's, yeah. So that, and then she also showed me some photos. Uh, she said that has medical doctor. She can, you know, say that it is the same, same handwriting, the same type of bullets. And it's really disturbing that now the new, uh, new coalition that they don't want to investigate what exactly happened. So that there is now stronger and stronger understanding that behind snipers, they were, it was not Yanukovych, but it was somebody from the new coalition. For some reason, the U.S. media didn't think that that little detail was worth covering. But wait, I thought the opposition protesters were just peaceful activists who wanted a chance to join the European Union. Well, yeah, that's the official narrative that the U.S. media outlets are peddling. But the real story is far more ominous. It turns out that the most powerful and influential contingent in the opposition is a coalition of literal fascists and neo-Nazis. And they aren't peaceful. In fact, they're extremely brutal. This is a picture of Victoria Newland from the U.S. State Department meeting with Ole Tanibok in February. And this is a picture of Senator John McCain sharing a stage with Tanibok in December. But why would the U.S. government work with neo-Nazis? Because they thought that they could control the situation. They thought that they could install their puppets behind the scenes and manipulate the situation in their favor. That same Victoria Newland who met with Svoboda in February was caught on another leaked call discussing who they would put in power. What do you think? Uh, I think we're in play. Um... The, the uh, Klitschko piece is obviously the complicated electron here, um, especially the announcement of him as Deputy Prime Minister. And, and you've seen some of my notes on the troubles in the marriage right now, so we're trying to get a read really fast on where he is on this stuff. But I think your argument to him, which you'll need to make, I think that's the next phone call we want to set up, is exactly the one you made to, to Yachts. And I, I'm glad you sort of put him on the spot on where he fits in this scenario. And I'm very glad he said what he said in response. Good. So uh, I don't think Cleet should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you think what, in terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Book and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I, kinda... I, I, I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level... Working for Yatsenyuk, it's just not going to work.
welcome to The Daily Wrap-Up, a concise show dedicated to bringing you the most relevant independent news as we see it from the last 24 hours. Sunday, February 5th, 2023. Thank you so much for joining me today. That clip you just saw there I played many times. This is the uh, a clip from uh, Storm Clouds Gathering, pointing to something we're going to reference here in the beginning today. Kathy Ashton, uh, Kathy Ashton speaking with uh, the Estonian member of parliament, and, and, and she's the EU chief. This is the reality of the situation. Open discussions about, or uh, the first one, Kathy Ashton, and, and then the second part of it was uh, Victoria Newland, which you all know because we've discussed her at length in the context of Ukraine, the bio labs, all of this, the interesting overlap. But in the first part of that, that's them openly discussing that they know and that the internal circles of the governments are well aware that the people who shot people at the Maidan protests were the people backed by the West. To make that very clear, just like the discussion of, of, of Syria, just like the discussion of every other location you could point at with the, the manipulations in the background. Then you've got Victoria Newland handpicking between two people the discussions of who will and will not go into the government. You know, democracy. And this is what they want you to think was a transition of power in a democratic state. What it really was, as you should know by now, and what we can see happening there right now was the beginnings, or at least the, I mean, it's hard to say beginnings with how long this has been going on there, but the beginnings of a new agenda within an older one that had been going on for a long time. We're going to start today with a very quick point, try to make it quick around foreign policy, because I just need to get some of this out today for people to understand what's going on in this exact point. But that larger point does over, you know, it, it there's a lot of, connective points to see that the u.s government or any of these governments would do that would lie to you would regime change a government for their own purposes while destroying things for the very people they claim they're trying to rescue or test on people or execute all kinds of bio manipulation i mean these these things overlap whether it's foreign policy or now the biosecurity state so that's why that's important but just to show you what's going on in places like yemen today it's very important to understand this is a horrific reality that is still going on still right now during all of this but then we're going to get into the main points of today and hopefully i can do that quick to begin because i do want to focus today on some actually diane thank you who just sent me something directly via email that i got right before i went live is very important i was already going to get into this but this is the exact documentation that i wanted to point at in all this and show you how interesting it is in regard to the emergency use authorization those that have been following this channel for a long time are well aware of what i'm going to get into this gets really interesting and I really do believe, and I could have said, I, I actually originally wrote in the title, White House Exposes or Reveals or Admits, but Biden was just shorter, so it's the same point. It shouldn't really be taken as a partisan point. It would have been Trump if he was there or whoever else before, but the government is very clearly exposing their hand for some reason. You can, guys can discuss for yourselves, and I have my opinions, the emergency use authorization scam, and it's more than just COVID-19. It's been, as far as I can tell, there's emergency use authorizations that they've just adapted from older smallpox vaccines to maintain the monkeypox emergency use authorization. It's just madness. And it's all really just sidestepping the regulatory process, which in and of itself is completely broken anyway. So it doesn't really make, I mean, it really does show a picture of the fact that they can't have every single, the people trying to manipulate others, whoever that would be in the moment cannot really effectively manipulate every single person in every single field of authority. You've got people that just work at lower levels or even middle or high levels at the FDA that don't necessarily know every single thing that's going on or the people at the top and what they may be lying about. So when they get confronted with something where they go, wait a minute, I thought we were doing good here. 
That's how whistleblowers are born. And you can see that this is a game that they're playing today. Anyway, I digress. The point is we're going to get into the emergency use authorization and how clearly that's being exposed to you today because of what the Biden White House essentially did. We're going to talk about how that relates to everything else and how that has been used to cover up a lot more specifically in regard to uh, on a tangential note, the Pfizer clinical trials or all of them and how we're now seeing that what actually took place in those things aren't even actually what they told you was not even what actually happened. The reality of those trials are showing some pretty damning evidence that nobody in the corporate media seems to be talking about. One important point we're going to get into is a great article from Sonia Elijah from her from trial site news talking about evidence suggesting that Pfizer falsified key parts of the data. Now, I wrote that they did in my title without any possible, because I think this is very clear. This absolutely happened, whether what she points at is provable is up for you to decide. We have Brooke Jackson's background here in the interviews they're in. We have the information, as I just mentioned, about the previous trials. And we have, by the way, evidence of Pfizer historically doing many, 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 many times lying to us about these exact kind of things. So very clearly Pfizer has, and I believe very clearly is still now falsifying key data in regard to this. And that's obvious. I think we're going to talk about myocarditis and a really important study actually on top, on the back of all the other very important studies showing you something that I think is far more damning than many of the people in this conversation on the, you know, people that are trying to, I mean, honestly, even those in the middle don't really want to acknowledge as long as the conclusion says something a little bit away from what the data seems to show. We'll get into how that's happening a lot today, but also a big, very important study on long COVID or whatever that actually is. And something that I think is even more damning, same actual point that the study is being pointed at as proof of what they're talking about. I find the study itself to show, I'll let you decide for yourself. I personally think the data is very clearly showing that there is an immune problem happening, but we'll go through all this today for you guys to Look through for yourselves. And as always, every single thing we discuss, point at, talk about, it'll be there for you in the show notes below. Uh, except for sometimes when I forget to post the link to the opening video and so on. Aside from that, everything we talk about will be posted. And I should be doing that. I just forget sometimes. In any case, let's start off today with what I just pointed at in the beginning. And I do think this is very important because I want people to understand this is not some... This is a story that has been repeatedly proven to be true. And even though that's the case, even though you'll see this posted in 2014 on Reuters, it's still dismissed as fake news. Right now on Twitter, the government will act like that video is misinterpreted, misunderstood, not even real, depending on what moment they're in. Just think about how wild that is. This is what's happening right now with the vaccine injection and everything else. The, the evidence is there. This thing has been proven to be very, very, very entirely all the way around dangerous for a long time. They just pretend it's not happening. It's very interesting. So here is the opening, uh, the, the article in regard to that opening clip that, again, every time I play, I get people in the comments that say, that's not even true. That didn't really happen. Here it is. Leaked audio reveals embarrassing U.S. exchange on Ukraine. A conversation between a State Department official and the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine that was posted on YouTube, that was the second part you saw, revealed an embarrassing exchange on U.S. strategy for a political transition in that country. Now, it says here that U.S. accusations that Russia helps publicize the tape, the tape conversation, also threatened Washington's already tense relationship. Don't you love that? Just like with the WikiLeaks information and everything else, or Russia gay. So you're telling us that Russia, I guess, 
told the truth and that's why they're bad guy? Or it's like, how does that work exactly? So even if you want to pretend that they're doing that to benefit themselves, which is quite transparently obvious because it benefits them to show that you guys are lying to us, how is that bad for American people to know the truth regardless of what the person using it is trying to achieve? You see how this game is they play? This is how this goes. They pretend like it's bad for you to care about the truth if Russia's pointing at it. The audio clip, now, by the way, that does not mean that, therefore, what Russia shows you is the truth. That's how somebody would love to misrepresent what I just said. The point is truth and facts are truth and facts, regardless of who show them to you. And you should question all of them, regardless of who they come from. The audio clip, which was posted on Tuesday, but gained wide circulation on Thursday, appears to show the official Assistant Secretary of State, Victoria Newland weighing in on the makeup of the next Ukrainian government. Oh, is that what you heard, guys? Was she weighing in and suggesting? Or was that, the, was that two SUS officials literally handpicking and choosing who would later exactly become the government? We all know the reality. They've actually admitted this in other contexts, but this is just ridiculous the way they play this. And this is, again, this is the same thing that's happening in every other context, every other conversation we're having today. And it could be because they don't want to get caught, whoever's involved. It could be because the people involved just want to lie to you. It could be because they have a larger agenda at play. Don't assume into those things. Just go with the facts. That's what I'm trying to get people to go along with in this broken, subjective world we're being forced into. Newland is heard telling U.S. Ambassador Jeffrey Pratt that she doesn't think Klitschenko the boxer turned politician who is a main opposition leader should be in the new government who is still currently there right now, by the way. So I don't think uh, Klitsch, as she says, should go into the government. Says, I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. Separately on Thursday, a senior Kremlin aide accused the United States of arming Ukrainian rebels and wanted Russia and warned Russia could intervene to maintain its security of its neighbor. Wait a minute. You mean 2014, Russia was already going, hey, you guys over there funding all those dangerous people, you're going to force us to do something about that. And it took all the way until 2022, and then they pretend like Russia just did something unexpected, and nobody saw it coming, and they were crazy and belligerent and all the garbage they sell to you on CNN and Fox News. Think about how silly that is, and it's right there in English on Reuters. They don't care that you can look up their own comments from before, just like the dangerous Nazis in Ukraine on the 21st suddenly became freedom fighters on the 22nd, just like they always do in the corporate media. Toe the line. And yes, don't forget, that is T-O-E. Look it up from the reference. I think it's important for people to have the true background of these things, but separately it says funding the rebels. Now think about that. They were denying that at the time. See, here we go. Now I'm realizing I didn't want to take too long on this. I always could go so deep on this because I love to give my peripheral points, but I do want to get through this quick. So the point is rebels that they claimed they weren't funding. And now we know they were because now they're pointing back at it now that they've admitted to it. And it's, it, that's how this game gets played. It's national security. We lie if we want to. It says U.S. officials, while declining to confirm the recordings, contents did not dispute its authenticity. I did not say it was not authentic. Jen Psaki said back in 2014, Psaki also criticized Russian officials publicizing of the tape as a new low in Russian tradecraft. Right, because it's, it's entirely below the belt to show the truth, right? And denied Washington was trying to meddle or engineering in a particular outcome, despite the fact that we now know as verifiable fact that's what they were doing and are doing right now. Absolutely not, she said. It should be no surprise that U.S. officials talk about issues around the world. Typical Pasaki response. Of course we do. That's what diplomats do. Is that what they were doing, though? Because this is what they love to do, because they want people will take their answer instead of looking at what actually happened. The exchange is clear. 
They just lie, even as it's happening. And now it becomes fake news because this didn't happen if you talk to him right now. But to get into more, one last point on Ukraine, actually. This is the incredible part about this. What they tell you in public on the completely co-opted corporate media is completely different than what they actually say in normal settings. Or even like, let's say when you're talking about Israel, what the U.S. government tells you Israel's saying is almost exactly the opposite of what Israel's actually saying. Think about how easy to prove that is and how absurd it is, but people still go along with it. Here is German's foreign minister. So the line is supposed to be that we're just supporting democracy. We're not fighting a war. We're not actually at war with Russia. That'd be crazy, right? Except when you listen to them behind the scenes, that's what they say. Therefore, I've said already in the last days, yes, we have to do more to defend Ukraine. Yes, we have to do more also on tanks. But the most important and the crucial part is that we do it together and that we do not do the blame game in Europe because we are fighting a war against Russia and not against each other. Thank you. Oops. Oops. Right. Because the point is, you're trying to sell them on how we're not fighting each other. We're fighting Russia. Oops. But I said the thing we're not supposed to admit. That's how it works when you lie about everything. But the point is, they are fighting a war against Russia. And that was always the plan. That's actually clearly documented in plenty of locations. But just in case you missed this on February 2nd, not only are they training Ukrainians in the United States, the EU is training 30,000 Ukrainian troops as of February 2nd going forward. That's an increase from 15 to 30,000 right now, but totally not involved in the war at all, though. Well, just on top of that, don't don't miss the fact. And yes, this is RT. If that matters to you, in case you can't do your own due diligence like a child would not be able to. But the point is Donetsk apartment block hit by Ukrainian artillery. Whether RT or not, this has been verified by numerous independent journalists on the ground, and it continues to happen. The only interesting part is that the corporate media doesn't even care to dive into it. Not to say fake or anything, they just don't even talk about it. Despite the fact that there is an obvious building and it obviously happened and you have people hurt on the ground. And yeah, I guess it could have come from a Russian location, except that you can prove mathematically that it didn't based on. But who cares about all the facts? We just don't talk about it in the corporate media because lives only matter when they suit our agenda. Well, to talk about how horrific that reality is and how easy that is to prove, you don't need to go any further than Yemen. January 12th. 2023. Oxfam finds scores of civilians killed by U.S.-U.K. weapons in Yemen. And this is not a new story, guys. But again, it only matters when the bad guys do it. As long as you killed more people than them, but you scream freedom, then you're the good guy. But if they kill less than you, but you say they're doing it for wrong reasons, even though they disagree with you, they're the bad guy. It's all narrative, guys. That's all that matters. The Human Rights Monitoring Group has released a new report finding at least 87 Yemeni civilians were killed with American or British weapons just during the last 14-month period. Didn't hear about that in the news, did you? I guess those 87 civilians didn't matter, and it's a hell of a lot more than 87. These are people that they can prove were killed. The Oxfam report reviewed 1,700 attacks on civilians. 1,700 attacks, not peripherally or accidentally, 1,700 attacks on civilians and found Saudi Arabia used UK or US weapons over a fourth of the time. So just make sure you don't miss the main part there, though. They found as a human rights organization that Saudi Arabia deliberately aimed at and targeted 1,700 times civilians. Amazing that didn't breach the news unless they're just super busy lying to you about COVID-19 vaccinations. This is staggeringly important, and nobody wants to talk about it outside the independent media. Now, just in case it, you want to uh, – let me see if this even pops up. No. 
case you wanted to look at an older article that actually Whitney wrote, I believe, back before she was actually writing for T-Lav. And this one is a really ridiculous article. True. Easily provable. But ridiculous because nobody talked about this outside of the independent media. And it's, I mean, read the article for yourself. It is provable. MBS, at the time, and actually we're getting to this next. I kind of jumped the gun. But we're going to get to the idea of the 50 children that were killed in a bombed school bus in 2020. The point was, after that happened, when the West was pretending that they accidentally did that and pretending that they cared and pretending like they were going to do better, MBS, oh, excuse me, technically, no, wait, am I misremembering the time frame? I, th- I would have swore, if you asked me before this, that it was after that. I guess not. And I, well, either way, it's the same point. Because he did comment on this in different ways. Regardless, this is 2018. My point was going to be that he said this after the bombing. But at the time this had was said, the bombings, would get, that 50 kids in one school bus bombing got a lot of attention. But it was by no stretch of the imagination the worst thing that has happened there. The point, nonetheless, back to it, was that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the leader of Saudi Arabia, you know, the bastion of freedom and democracy that U.S. government works with? No, the openly totalitarian, authoritarian monarchy, because that's totally in line with all the, in, you know, principles of the current staff. I mean, think about how stupid that is. Anyway, wants Yemenis to, quote, shiver for generations when they hear Saudi Arabia, vows to continue targeting children. You can look this up for yourself. This is what he, ver- this is actually what he said. So they target children because they want the people to say, this is what Israel does in Palestine. This is what the U.S. government does in Syria. They collectively punish, which, by the way, is an open and documented war crime. That means they punish whoever. They bomb the country for the actions of a group, killing whoever, just to be like, that's what happens. So you guys better start self-regulating. Stop your friends. Stop Hamas. Stop Houthis. Stop them from doing what they want for your freedom. Otherwise, we're going to bomb you guys. That's not what good guys do. Back to the point. It says the intensity of these attacks would not have been possible without a ready supply of arms. That is why it's vital the UK and others must stop arming the Yemen war. Of course, they've been saying that for 20 years, for 10 years. Butcher reports the American or British arms were used by the Saudi military to kill 87 civilians and bomb 19 medical facilities and displace over 300 more. This again, this is just the last 14 months, 19 medical facilities. Guess we didn't hear about that and all the bleeding about how that's happening. You, What about the Yemeni people? So it doesn't matter when Saudis use U.S. weapons to bomb hospitals. This is recorded, guys. This is just they're not even saying this isn't true. They're just not talking about it. The Oxfam study found that over 1700 attacks on civilians during a 14 month window, a quarter of which with their weapons, even with the ceasefire conditions. Now, this gets into this recent period. I for Humanity Center for Rights. Developed and development estimates over 600 civilians were killed last year despite the ceasefire conditions. The Oxfam report looks at the data from 14 months prior to the ceasefire. So, in the point was that the ceasefire taking place after that, 600 more people were killed. And we're talking about Yemenis, right? This is not in reverse. This is not the Houthis killing Saudi Arabia, Saudis. We're talking about the Yemeni people being killed. One way game here. In August 2020, a Lockheed Martin bomb killed what was used to kill 50 children in a traveling school bus. The only reason anybody even cared about this outside of independent media was because Jim Carrey, the actor, suddenly got notice of it and made a cartoon. It was a terrifying cartoon with a bus on fire with children screaming, and it got attention by the corporate media because they had to address it after that. 
Then suddenly they stopped caring, even though two more buses full of children were bombed after that. They didn't talk about those, though. Check out the T-Lab website if you want more on that. Tufts University, Martha Mundy released a report showing how Riyadh was intentionally targeting their food infrastructure. They don't even hide this. This is the same game we just talked about. They personally bomb. They focus on it. The U.S. government knows they focus on it. They focus on the, the food. They focus on the water. They focus on the port of Hodeida. And then when the U.S. government reports it, they just go, no, it's just accidental bombings or they bombed it and blamed them or whatever they always say. You can prove all of this stuff. And again, Saudi Arabia, if you listen to them, will tell you that. At least 400,000 people have been killed during the eight-year war. The bloody nature of the war has not prevented three American presidents in a row, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Joe Biden, from, despite their political, quote-unquote, differences, from supporting the same war going forward. And, of course, Bernie Sanders, pretending like he cares, is going to stop it, and then suddenly goes, no, we're going to let the government handle it, and pulls back the legislation for the umpteenth time. But that's the good guys, right? That's, that's what's happening. Oh, and just to show you how ridiculous this is getting, this is a new story. The U.S. appears to have used its missile full of swords bomb real thing, in an airstrike in Yemen. Yemen that we just talked about, because that's so pressing, right? Is that a war for freedom? No, this is a war of control on its surface, trying to put back in a U.S. puppet who currently lives in Saudi Arabia. The people in Yemen don't want that. The people they've elected don't want that. The only people that want that are Saudi Arabia, the U.S. government, and the pocket of terror terrorists of Al-Qaeda that they control within the area that you can prove. And here we are bombing civilians. Did the United States deploy a secretive missile that's basically an anvil covered in swords to target a vehicle? Seems like it. This is not a joke, though. This is ridiculous. Three suspected al-Qaeda militants were killed. But yeah, you know, again, why I think that's a lie? Because you can prove the al-Qaeda territory that's perfectly landlocked and inside of the controlled Saudi territory, which has never altered since the beginning of this. You'd think they would diminish that area if they were really attacking al-Qaeda, but no, it stays there. Just like every other place you can prove they're working alongside these entities. Suspected. Even if they were fighting them, we're going to go along with they didn't know, but they killed them anyway. That's how this works. Based on photos of the scene, basically the bottom line is you can see that the way the car looks, this was not your typical what they call their Hellfire missile. This was essentially what they show here. It's like, a, like a, an anvil with no explosive part with a bunch of swords on it. Sounds really specific, doesn't it? That's what they're pretending it's all about. First publicized by the Wall Street Journal in 2019, uh, known as the Flying Ginsu or Ninja Bomb. Basically, the point was to make it more focused. It says it has actually become their preferred method of precision strikes. Yeah, that's what they actually said. An anvil with swords is their precision strike. Makes sense, right? For this government does. Indeed, the strike in Yemen is yet another reminder of the lingering reach of America's global war on terrorism. Because that's what they're doing, right? Fighting the thing that seems to get bigger every time they do something? No, this is an illusion. Just like they've admitted, the supposed terror presence has gotten larger since their supposed war. The war on terror was a war on you. Under a guise of fighting the people that they were by and large funding and creating, which we should now know, especially after something like James Corbett's documentary here, or Ben Swan's older documentary about where this all came from. The U.S. government created this, guys. It's a fact, and it's so... I'm tired of pulling punches here. The bottom line, though, is that they're pretending they're fighting a war on terror, and this is... The the article just simply says it's another reminder of how this continues despite the end of the 20-year forever war in Afghanistan, which also never ended. That's the pretend game they're playing. Well, they still have all sorts of contractors and people on the ground. 
Less than a week after U.S. Africa Command announced, the U.S. forces in Somalia conducted a successful counterterrorism operation, an operation that came in the tail end of air, twin airstrikes that killed more than 30. Of the, they claim they're bad guy fighters, but how, how do we know? Right. They also claim that the Taliban were bad, but then they worked with them for a while and then went back and then they they worked with the it's such a game of whoever they want you to think is bad. And of course, as long as any of them are willing to normalize relations with Israel, they'll forget all of your bad wrongdoings because that's all they care about, it seems. Now, here is just a a video from Sarah Abdallah posting this in regard to uh, Mick Wallace, showing you just how easy it is to point how the the hypocrisy out of what these people are. When Zelensky pushed for the special tribunal last December, he said that without justice, there can be no peace. The reality is that war is the greatest injustice suffered on this earth, and too many are working hard to prolong this one. Zelensky should be at the negotiating table, but instead tours the world selling his forever war, as Ukraine is destroyed and conscripted Ukrainians are killed by the tens of thousands. In the past 25 years, the imperialist powers have perpetrated wars of aggression against Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria and Yemen. They've killed millions of people and displaced millions more, dropped toxic munitions and committed countless war crimes. NATO members have never faced justice for these crimes. Of course, Russia should also be held to account for any crimes it commits, but the list is long. If we actually care about justice, we will stop the antagonism and hypocrisy and get down to the real work of peacemaking. Right. I mean, how, who can, how can anybody call that anything other than logic? They just don't like it because it paints them as the bad guy, even though clearly, and this is even if you think Russia is the bad guy, I'm using the juvenile terms for a reason. Even if you think that Russia is the bad guy, that doesn't make the U.S. the not bad. What they're doing is egregious. The government, whether it's, I mean, all of the British government, the U.K. government, the Australian government. The New Zealand government? I mean, all of these entities out there are in lockstep right now, and it's alarming. What's showing you it's probably not the government we're talking about. But either way, in Israel, to reiterate this, how the corporate media lied to you about the Jerusalem Jerusalem settlement shooting where settlers killed, I think think it was over 35 Palestinians at this point, numerous civilians, one woman shot in the neck and the stomach, complete old woman walking down the street. Nobody cares about this stuff. And then because another Palestinian the next day shot a couple of settlers, uh, just, you know, peripheral to some kind of synagogue, they then made that into, and it really was like on the street, not even connected to it. They made it about the synagogue shooting and white supremacy. And that's all they talked about. Now, even if you wanted to care about that more, shouldn't you reference the, the 10 people at that point that were killed before that happened? Of course not. The bottom line, the bottom line is this is a game of ignoring what the people on their side do while pushing the other. Israel strikes Iran. Shouldn't that be gigantic news? Remember when they even the insinuation that Iran might have done something near Saudi Arabia in connection to Israel. Oh, my God, the world melted down, even though it turned out to not be the case. It was actually just Yemen fighting back. But at the end of the day, this should be huge news. If this was in reverse. If Iran had bombed inside of Israel, this would be the end. This would be World War III. Israel, make sure of it. Israel strikes Iran. I mean, international push to contain Tehran. Literally have striked, have struck inside of Iran. And did they do anything back? Do you know what the U.S. would do if they even thought that happened? It's like, it's so funny how they the U.S. government has literally become what they paint the old Soviet Union as, where they just have to respond with aggression, otherwise we look weak. And that's how they think. I don't even think the rest of the world cares about that anymore. Not in the sense that they do. The point is, this is constant. John McAvoy points out, 20 years ago today, Colin Powell sat 
at, at the UN Security Council and consciously deceived the world, which he even admits to now, whether he on purposely lied, on purpose lied or not, as you can debate, but he, he admits that it was wrong about Iraq's weapons of mass destruction. One million Iraqis killed, you know, and classically, uh, what's her name? God, it's driving me crazy now. You know, the half a million Iraqi children died. It was worth it. Forget her name all of a sudden, you know, wrapped in torture. What's her name? I forget. Uh, anyway, the point is that they claim this was worth it. Country destroyed, they never saw one day in prison. Not only does the U.S. protect its war criminals, it actively celebrates its war crimes. U.S. military, this is actually crazy to me. Intercept writes, the U.S. military wants to name its new warship the USS Fallujah. Thank you, Madeline Albright, who just was, you know, a horrible person. Terrible. These people are not people to be rev- to revere or you know act like they were some kind of good person after the fact. You don't care what you think you did. If you stand there and pretend that five hundred thousand children killed was worth it, you do not deserve any kind of respect. The USS Fallujah, not a joke. The site of the worst atrocities during the Iraq War potentially ever. Like in the context of war setting. Horrific things, guys. Really bad. This is where we get the stories of uh, superiors being ordering people to rape children, to rape mothers in front of their family. This is all, you could argue they're lying about that, but this is, there's multiple soldiers who have testified to this stuff. Or murdering people they shouldn't, or stealing, or anything else. Here we are. But let's, let's name a warship after it, because we want to remember how good that was. Or at least repaint the history. The last couple points on this, and it's again, I took, you know, 34 minutes, way too long. Anyway, we'll get to all of it. They stick with us. Imagine pointing at Florida and comparing it to Nazi Germany while openly promoting and calling for the founding funding of the largest fascist presence on the planet in Ukraine. This is a teacher, or excuse me, a, a, I just saw that. I thought that was under his name. Jeff Tiedrich, teachers in Nazi Germany hid books to avoid being arrested. Teachers in Republican Florida are hiding books to avoid being arrested. Any questions? First of all, what an ignorant association. So again, this is the whole correlation causation kind of game. Like, I bet you you could find a hell of a lot of places where teachers might be doing that for, or any other example. Just because you have one thing happening where it happened here and happened there, therefore it is the same thing. I mean, that's really irresponsible comparison, first of all. But fine, you have a right to say whatever you want, because that's free speech, as they might argue in, in, in a different setting. But... The point is, imagine pointing at Florida right now while these people are actively supporting the funding of Ukraine. I mean, just think about how absurd that is. Even if you feel like it's a valid point for Florida, which I don't agree with, I just think that's crazy. You must be, that's willful ignorance. And as I said, oh wait, correction, correction, the largest openly fascist present on the planet, of course, because that's, you know, there's plenty of more fascist entities like the U.S. government, for example. Oh, wait, wait, correction. The largest openly fascist present on the planet behind the new Israeli government, of course, because we got, don't forget, they're openly fascist. But anyway, back to the point. Maxine, uh, Maxine Waters says, according to Lauren Bobert, who I don't support in any case, any of these people, I think they're all ridiculous, but it's still important to point out that Maxine Waters says that we have House Republicans who are domestic terrorists. Right, so did they, did they carry a terrorist act? Are they acting in violence for political ends? Well, you could argue that there's a connection to be made between political action and their, what they make happen overseas and the violence it carries out. But I don't think that's what Maxine Waters is getting at because she's just as involved in that. They're trying to pretend that MAGA terrorists. This is the game. As always, Maxine Waters can't seemingly tie her own shoes without re- regarding the Democrat Party and what they're supposed to be doing. 
And uh, these people aren't that bright, in my opinion. So she continues to kind of toe the line way after it seems that everyone's caught on, that it's maybe too clumsy or the people caught on. She's out there screaming about people being, you know, anyway, she's one of the worst. Interesting, as I don't remember anyone in the house who called for more violence than Maxine Waters. I totally agree. She's one of, this is my point I was making. She's out there screaming for violence and then points at this Trump or anybody else who says something that they pretend means something else. In any case, this is an agenda. And it's not about right and left. This is about creating a situation where anybody who goes against what they say becomes whatever they call that. And this is, if you want to look into more on this topic, I'm not going to get into it more today. I'll include these articles, you, these videos you can watch for yourself. This is the MAGA trap has been set. This is the really, really inflammatory discuss, uh, speech and executive orders coming from Biden in this regard, openly calling half the country essentially terrorists. January 6th, the failed false flag meant to blame Russia and you using the CIA Gronaza battalion. If that doesn't make sense to you, watch the show. It's a very important connection, which then goes to this one. Not just Azov, documents prove the CIA has been cultivating fascism in Ukraine since at least 1948, just like they did in Afghanistan using the Mujahideen against the Soviet Union. It's the same game, guys. Watch it if you want to know more. There's important stuff to understand there. It's the MAGA trap, the vanilla ISIS psyop. Okay, I know I took way too long in the foreign policy opening, but guys, I hope you realize why that's so important. Not only because it really does connect to everything else we're talking about, but just because these are people's lives we're talking about children and families and mothers and grandmothers and just people that are struggling and suffering and screaming in fear every day because of what's being done to them and then they get called the terrorists it really does matter it shows you the kind of people we're dealing with that would lie about things just like this now let's talk about the emergency use authorization talk about the far-reaching manipulation under the guise of this is what i always say the worst of the worst under the guise of doing good for you One of the guys of doing what's keeping you safe, when in reality, it's exactly the opposite. So they justify it by saying this is keeping you safe and your family safe. And in fact, the action they're doing in the emergency use authorization is potentially directly killing people. And I argue they know this. You could think for yourselves. Now, here's what it says. Pfizer responds to White House plans to end the COVID public health emergency. This is what first caught my eye about this, because this is crazy for her to say this. And this is actually what they're telling us now. I'm going to get to Meg Terrell, who has a news alert for us on Pfizer. Meg, what do we know? Hey, Scott, I just spoke with CEO Albert Borla. We talked about the fact that the U.S. is ending the public health emergency for COVID and the impact that could potentially have on Pfizer. We did confirm from the FDA today that's not going to affect existing emergency use authorizations. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. We'll get into that and the, the, the nuance that actually uh, that po- uh, pasta from uh, AM Wake Up we discussed this a while back, and he was actually he was correct in the sense that there are two different emergencies, essentially. HHS uh, and, and variations of the – we'll get into it in a second. But the point is that what she said right there, I still argue, is not accurate, but is being changed. But either way, we're talking about two things here. The fact that they're pretending they're going to end this arbitrarily on May 11th. But I'll show you why that's just in and of itself exposes how ridiculous and arbitrary or manipulative all this is. But on top of that – If the emergency is ended, how does that mean the emergency use authorizations will continue? Well, it could be that there's different emergencies, variations therein, but I'm going to show you the documentation that I think makes it pretty damn obvious that they're the same way they are manipulating the the definitions and the the meanings of words and the overlappings of what these regulations mean and how long they can last. Everything seems to be altering and it's seeming... It's not static anymore. All these things that are supposed to be maintained for regulatory purposes and enforcement are all kind of like transitory depending on what they think that day. It's, it's getting crazy. Absolutely crazy. 
And Pfizer's CEO saying overall he doesn't expect it to have a major impact on the company. They were already planning on transitioning the vaccines and the antiviral to the more commercial traditional market in the second half of this year. And yeah, we'll see if that actually happens, right? But here's the point. Why would they ever do that? Why would they ever subject themselves to more potential pushback when they don't need to? Right? So if the, if the ending of the emergency doesn't matter, which of course it obviously should, to an emergency use authorization, because the whole point is it's meant to be used during an emergency, otherwise you would go through the normal approval process because it was unnecessary. The only reason that they say these things are necessary is because it's at a time when you're in an emergency. Things are happening fast. People are dying. And you can't wait for a two-year trial. That's how they sell this to you. So what, they, what do they do? They weigh the known benefits worth alongside the known risks. That's where this, this terminology comes into play. Safe and effective and benefits outweigh the risks. All this comes into play because of emergency use authorization. They're all definitions and manipulated. Right? So if you have the situation where benefits, the known benefits outweigh the known risk, you can argue you can emergency authorize it in that case until we either no longer have the emergency or you can go through the normal process. And it implies, it's inherent in the term that we do not have all the information. I've proven that many times over. So the point, first of all, is that it's an art that May 11th makes no sense whatsoever. I'll show you why. Now, we've already made this clear many times that they have lapsed in the emergency declaration, which is a very important thing. It's very important. Where was it? I'll just show you this. Uh, well, actually, I don't want to get ahead. My point is that there is a, a, an important point about the HHS emergency, which is what we're talking about here. This is the HHS.gov Administration for Strategic Preparedness and Response Declaration of a Public Health Emergency. Now, the point is that these things last 90 days. 90 days, they have to be reinitiated. And October 13th was the, was one of the, was the time before last, last the renewal. The, last, the one that we just did was January 11th, but I'm making a point here. So October 13th. Again, it's just based on the continued consequences. Just really dumb, by the way, because if you go down to the bottom, just like all the rest of these, you'll find that it starts based on Oh, oh, come on. There we go. It's based on the termination of the public health emergency exists nationwide as a result of whatever we're dealing with. So it's really dishonest to just continue forever the emergency based on the continued consequences, especially when you're conflating other things that you don't even know for sure, like SIDS and SADS and COVID and long COVID and all these things, which they're including, by the way. They look at everything happening right now as some kind of continuation of the COVID problem and ignoring all of the that obvious vaccine and injection connections. But the point is they'll continue this forever if they want to do based on the continued consequences. Just to make that point clear, here's November 2nd, by the way, monkeypox being reinitiated under the continued consequences of an outbreak. So those 17 people that got an outbreak, that's, that's continuing to cause an emergency, even though we don't even talk about it, a national emergency. Just, I mean, who can't see how stupidly subjective that is? There's never been an emergency for monkeypox, despite their hyping whatever minor thing happened, and that just dropped off the conversation. But, just, but nonetheless, they've, re-initi- they've reinitiated this, this monkeypox emergency numerous times. I thought it was at least three. I guess not. So here it is, the, yeah, the beginning. And they reinitiate it as of November 2nd. Now, anyway, the point is, going to January 11th. So if they're saying May 11th is when this is going to end, how does that make sense? Here's the first, just, I just use the site so it's easy for you guys to see. 
October 13th was the first one, right? The one we pointed out. 90 days from that is January 11th. Okay, so you can see clearly they're aware of the time as they then reinitiated on January 11th. Now you go through here and you'll find at least four or five examples of them missing that deadline by at least four or five days sometimes, which means during that period, some of these things being done were illegal because you did not, and I'll prove that to you in a moment. But to go to the last one from January 11th, so when would that be? April 11th. So 90 days from January 11th is April 11th. I mean, it's basic math. It's very easy to see, just so it's very clear. Okay, so how does that make sense? So how could it possibly end on May 11th? Well, that would either mean that they're going to have a month of no declared uh, when it lapses, or they're going to reinitiate the 90-day emergency after April 11th and then pretend it ends on May, May 11th, and it actually has two more months. I honestly don't know. Or I guess just arbitrarily ended on May 11th just because they picked that day. I mean, why does it even make sense to pretend they know by May 11th this May? What that tells you is that they know now and they're just using this time, if that's even the truth. That none of this is honest, guys. But this is just the cursory point. So May 11th, apparently, just threw a dart, dart in the dartboard. Oh, May 11th, that's the one. We'll do that one. I mean, why not pick April 11th? Wouldn't that have made sense? <laughs> you see, you see, I'm sure you get my point. So here is the New York, uh, New York Times showing you the date. U.S. will end public health emergency for COVID in May. The end of the emergency will bring about a host of policy changes, and it signals a new chapter in government's pandemic response, or rather the control over your life that's unjustified. But it says the Biden administration plans to let the coronavirus public health emergency expire in May. But that doesn't, that's not even actually true. It wouldn't expire in May. It wouldn't expire in April 11th. Or if we're talking about the other emergency, which doesn't have the 90-day deadline, that expires when they just, that's not just a, there's not a set time frame. It's when they declare it. I'll show you that too. So neither of those make sense in what they just said. They want you to think this is the expected time. It expires on May. No, it doesn't. And as usual, two dedicated career journalists that write about medical stuff, apparently they don't know that or don't care or didn't don't have the ability to do the due diligence. I don't know. The White House said on Monday a sign that federal officials believe the pandemic has moved into a new, less dire phase. Notice how they never really name it anymore. <laughs> is it the pandemic phase? Is it the endemic phase? Is it the, is it the post-pandemic? Or is it the, like they, Biden and Fauci both made that mistake by giving us a name where they said, oh, no, now we're at this part. <laughs> we're at this name. And we're all like, we knew it. It's over. It was never there. <laughs> and then they rolled it back. And the WHO steps in and goes, no, 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 we were not over yet. Now we're back in the pandemic. See, see, it's just, it's just arbitrary. But the point is a less dire phase. What does that even mean? Either we're in an emergency or we're not. You don't get to play this middle ground forever as long as you want, which is what they're doing. The White House wants to keep the emergency in place for several more months so hospitals, health providers, and health officials can prepare for a host of changes. Well, why didn't they tell them that in the beginning of the year? Why didn't we talk about that way back when, when... Biden said it was over. How about even before that when Fauci told us we were in the secondary phase? Or how about when the UK wrote in March 2020 that it was no longer a high-consequence disease? I mean, all of these points. But no, this is arbitrary and clearly not about what we think it is. Officially, this is, this is millions of Americans have received free COVID tests. And says, and not all of that will continue to be free once the emergency is declared over. And that is, again, the point, this is, this is, that's a relevant point in regard to the test being one of the uh, devices, and I'll show you that. So keep that in mind. An average of more than 500 Americans are still dying from COVID every day. Oh, are they? 
is that the, is that what's happening? Or are we talking about the same game we know from the very beginning? The same game that we have people with injections in their body that die within 13 days, and they call that unvaccinated. Or we have examples of people getting tested and then die in a car accident, and a false PCR test becomes COVID-19 death. Over and over and over, they've admitted to these things, and we still can't get past it. The highest level, which I don't really mean, journalists in the world are out there just blindly taking the same lies over and over. We all seem to know that. We know that they've admitted that's the case. We have videos of them saying, you know, very liberal with the numbers. If they die from a clear alternate cause, it still goes down as, I guess they just don't see those things, right? We know that's not true. We must acknowledge today that these people, including the editorial team of New York Times, they know that's there. They don't care. They don't care. That means at some level, they're very aware that's not even true. That best, that's part of that number, but they don't care, guys. And you could even argue they want to lie to you because they've, they've told themselves that it's for a greater good. It doesn't even matter. They're lying. Still, the White House said on Monday that the, the nation needed an orderly transition. The administration said it also intended to allow a separate declaration of a national emergency to expire in May. There you go. So there's your overlap, right? So we have May in this one. set to expire, which technically that would be the right term in this case, which I argue is irrelevant for a lot of different reasons we'll get into next. But then you've got the other one, which doesn't expire. Okay, it doesn't. I'll I'll get into it. These are all just cursory points before we go through the documentation. So what they're ultimately trying to make you think is that this is just the natural decline of the problem and everything went well and now we're just getting back to normal no this is an engineered movement that's what's important to understand and it says an abrupt end to the emergency declarations would create wide-ranging chaos not really guys not even remotely in my opinion but here's what this says and this is the one point i was making about pasta shout out to pasta in general uh please note a determination under section 319 that's, that's one of the ones we're discussing. I think it's verse 549. We'll show you next. Under Section 319 of the Public Health Service Act that a public health emergency exists, such as the one issued on January 31st, 2020. So that one is the one here we're talking about. Right there. Dang it. Well, just that one. <laughs> Didn't mean to highlight all that. There you go. Just this. Okay. So that's the one we're talking about. So that's to be clear, that's what we're discussing in this page here, right? So they're saying that is the one issued on January 31st, 2020, does not enable FDA to issue emergency use authorizations. So that's what they're saying in general. I'll let you decide whether that has changed over time. And I do believe these things have ebb and flow, but we're getting to the main point. On February 4th, 2020, this is the alternative. This is a different one, apparently. February 4, 2020, the HHS secretary determined that there is a public health emergency that has a significant potential to affect national security. This is where you get the overlap, too, with the DOD kind of behind the scenes, like, you know, the illusion of what a lot of this is, or the health and security of the United States civilians living abroad, and that involves the virus that caused COVID-19. So you've got January uh, 31st, 2020, and February 4, 2020. By the way, for those arguing otherwise, both of which were initiated under Donald Trump's administration. So either way you look at this, the states of emergency were declared and began the whole thing because of actions taken by Donald Trump. You could argue he was manipulated or confused, but that's kind of irrelevant now, isn't it? We're at a point now where we know none of this would have been possible if Trump hadn't handed the baton off to Biden. 
I argue it would have been the same if they had switched positions. If Biden had been first and then Trump, we would be seeing the same thing. And that would almost be more damaging because then people now would be ignoring the even more severe risk. But either way. The point is that they claim that there are two separate things and they were initiated at different dates. Subsequent HHS declarations supporting use of EUAs and based on this determination are described in the blue box below. You can get into all this stuff down here, which is a hell of a lot of crazy stuff. Now, here is the update to what's going on now. This is what I find very interesting. Now, if the argument is that this is that one doesn't have an effect on the other, let's say, and that the one that they're changing now doesn't, I think it's interesting that it's written, and this looks like this is a change. It says 20, January 31st, 2023 update. Now it says the FDA intends to issue a federal register notice regarding how HHS's determination to end the COVID-19 public health emergency declared under Public Health Service Act will impact the emergency agency's COVID-19 related guidances and which of those guidances it is temporarily extending or letting expire. Okay, so they're in, they're they're issuing a register to in in which seems to be changing this stuff. Otherwise, why would they need to issue something to if it was going the way it always had? Importantly, the ending of the public health emergency declared by HHS under the Public Health Service Act will not impact FDA's ability to authorize devices, even though we just heard that, that the, the device part we just pointed at including tests, treatments, and vaccines for emergency use. Existing emergency use authorizations for products will remain in effect, and the agency may continue to issue new emergency use authorizations going forward when criteria for issuance are met. Now, understanding there are two different states of emergency, I guess, which aren't, that's not even the right way to say that. They're both regarding the same emergency, right? That's pretty clear. So if one of them is being ended, what what is the other one pointing at? You understand the point? Like if we're only dealing with the COVID nineteen emergency, how can they argue that it's no longer an emergency in the context of the nation, and yet then still argue that this emergency is in, is still important for them to initiate to continue to use the EUAs for the injections they're giving to people in this country, despite them telling you it's no longer an emergency? Think about that. Then realize this game in general, how this is being played, this shell game, acting like we're trying to, you know, FDA regulation, then it becomes EUA, then it becomes, there's multiple levels of this game. Now, as it says right here, this is what I think is very important. I think so far, this is reasonably clear. There are different dates initiated a month apart, one of which is more related to larger generalized code, and one of them specifically initiate, or initiated, uh, related to tests, treatments, vaccines, and so on. Now, it says, can emergency use authorizations continue after the public health emergency is over? If so, can FDA continue to issue EUAs under the public health emergency after it is over? Now, it says, there are several types of declarations and determinations related to emergencies, including public health emergencies, which serve different purposes. People asking this question are usually referring to the declaration by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that a public health emergency exists under Section 319. Under Section 319, now this is the original one we talked about, the HHS secretary can issue a determination, also referred to as a declaration, and that is the public health emergency, PHE, that this exists. 
The declaration generally lasts for 90 days. That's what we're just pointing at, but may be extended by the secretary after each extension. Again, right there, by the way, let's not miss the point that how many times they've already lapsed on that. So separate conversation, just focusing on 319 and the public health emergency. And that's specifically related to these, the, uh, the use of these. The point is that they have continued to lapse on that. So anything that is tied to that is illegal in those days, time period where they don't have that emergency. And again, I'll make that clear in one more second. I mean, I'll just, I'll just show it to you and come back to you since I keep saying that. Here's another document from the FDA website. Duration of, and this is from 2014. So again, before all these big changes. Duration of HHS declaration and EUA. It says the duration of an EUA depends in part on the duration of the HHS declaration that supports the EUA. Now we're talking about the, uh, the secondary one, which was the 564. And it says the HHS declaration must, must be current for an EUA to remain in effect. Okay, so if the HHS declaration must be current and they're about to end this declaration, how does that make sense? And they're talking about ending both of them, you understand. If May is going to expire, and they're talking about ending this now, how in the world can these continue to be used after both of these have stopped? Or even the specific one we're talking about has been stopped. It says it plainly. The declaration has to be current for an EUA to remain in effect. That's pretty clear. Now it says the declaration lasts 90 days, and it says uh, it, can, it can be extended the last 90 days or until they declare the emergency no longer exists, whichever occurs first. So again, I argue, if they're ending this emergency in either one, they're declaring the emergency no longer is present. That should then affect the other peripheral emergency declaration, which I don't even know why these two make sense together. But at the end of the day, that should end the emergency, right? So if they're declaring the emergency ends, then that therefore de- ends any dec- – I mean, it's, I think that's pretty clear. But it says it's Section 319 – Public health emergency declaration does not enable the FDA to issue EUAs. That's the other one. Separate declarations, sometimes referred to as EUA declarations, and this is where I believe the game is being played, like this secondary manipulation. If This, I think, is a way to make this exact kind of game undefinable. But it says under Section 564 of the FDA Cosmetic Act, excuse me, F, the FDNC Act, also issued by the HHS, which seems ridiculous that they're just issuing separate things under the same line, enable the issuance of EUAs. Okay, so before the FDA can issue the EUAs, which we know that they are, and we just got told they're going to continue to do that even after this is over, the HHS secretary must declare that circumstances exist justifying the authorization. Okay, I mean, what am I misunderstanding here, guys? You let me know if I'm missing something. This is under this explanation. And don't forget, the New York Times made clear that they're going to end both of them anyway within a month of each other. So what are we talking about? If they're telling you this is not happening under this one specifically, and they then say that they must have the circumstances existing and justifying it for that to exist, it seems like they've trapped themselves with this game. Unlike the Section 319, the public health emergency declaration that expires if not extended, the 90-day one, the EUA, and that's what I was just saying, declaration under 564 generally continues until they terminate it. Okay, so back to the point about the New York Times. They claim both of them expire. They're wrong. On February 4th, 2020, HHS issued the determination under 564 that there is a PHE, public health emergency, that has a significant potential to affect national security. Based on that determination, they issued four EUAs for in vitro diagnostics, that's in the lab, personal respiratory protective devices, 
medical devices and drugs and biological products, which we're talking about vaccines, masks, all this stuff, right? If the secretary terminates an EUA declaration, which we just talked about, then any emergency use authorizations issued based on that declaration will cease to be in effect. I mean, it doesn't seem like this very article is trying to say that this isn't the case, but then literally says that's the case, especially when you realize that they're telling you that both of them will end, one in apparently April, one, or rather one apparently in, um, one in May 11th and the other one on, uh, that's interesting. So May, actually, the time frame seemed to be reasonably aligned. April 11th is when the 90-day one technically expires. Or, April, excuse me, I'm getting confused on the timing. <laughs> May 11th is when it technically expires. Anyway, the point is that this seems pretty clear to me that this is saying that it that once they're declared the end of the emergency on either side of this, that they will cease to be in effect. And again, to go back to 2014, This is talking about, and here, let's go to the top here to show you what we're dealing with. Pandemic and All Hazard Preparedness Reaction Act of 2013. Medical countermeasures. FDA questions and answers for public health preparedness and response stakeholders. Seems pretty clear. And you can see the top of the category here. How does this amend EUA authority? And again, we're literally talking about 564. The same thing we just pointed at. And it says quite clearly that the HHS declaration must be current for the EUA to remain in effect. So I think, and it says down here under the side note, as noted earlier, before an EUA can be issued, the HHS secretary must make a declaration of an emergency or threat of emergency, such as the circumstances exist to justify the issuance. So let's go back to this, wherever it was. How exactly, oh, is this right here? How exactly do they pretend this is justified? That they're going to continue to allow them to use these emergency use authorizations despite the fact that they just claimed they're ending both of them, but specifically 564. And I mean, I, you, I mean, you tell me. Like, I almost, when I went through this, I almost felt like, am I missing something? Simply because it seems like they, oh, like, no, no, it's definitely the difference between the two, Right? Like, even as it says right here, like, oh, that's typically because somebody's talking about this one versus that one. But then they literally get into 564, and they say the same thing. And 319 is going to end on May, uh, let's be sure, before I keep confusing myself, end on April 11th. So May 11th, the 564 is going to end. April 11th, the other one's going to end. They're wrong about both of them on the New York Times. And yet they're going to continue. Please tell me what I'm missing. FDA, on top of that, again, thank you to shout out to Diane, who sent me this right before I went live. The FDA wants to interfere in the practice of medicine. This is a post from the Wall Street, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal, January 12th, 2023. A little notice provision in the omnibus spending bill could give the agency power to ban off-label use of approved therapies. So now we're getting to the point where just, they're just hyper-controlling everything across the board. The very group that we know at this point has been shown to be caught lying at the very least. Then, as I said, in the and this this clip should actually be related to literally everything on this show today. They, they, they're at a point now where they are straight up telling you, "Don't think." I'm not even talking like behind the scenes. The surface level of this message is, "Don't think, follow." I just am blown away by this. And it, as it says, check out the government made video encouragingly telling you to stop going down rabbit holes. I said, this is wild. Yet again, the government message, don't think, 
just follow direction. I, I mean, it's on the surface of this message. I'll show you next. No one is saying, I mean, I shouldn't say that sure somebody is, but most people, nobody intelligent is out there saying, buy everything on the internet. That's how they want you to pretend we're just that dumb, that unless we know how to trust, that we're just going to buy everything somebody puts in front of us. That's how they play this game. Like the kind of people they present as most Americans are what they're trying to create. The ignorant, dumbed down, blindly following kind of American that just does what they're told. That is by and large the vast, vast minority. More so today than ever, in my opinion. But no one is saying buy everything, especially not government info, but don't even look at it. Like, how can you actually pretend that's a fair argument? Interesting and chilling times we have sleepwalked into. <laughs> you watch the last part. Start connecting to answers, to pharmacists, to nurses, to care. The bottom line is they're saying, don't look at things. Just look at what the government website says. That's it. Because it's dangerous. You could end up a white supremacist tomorrow if you just do. Oh. Like, it's just so ridiculous the way that they frame this stuff. Like, really? Like, these are the kind of scared Karens out there that are actually going to do this because they think what the government's saying is true. Most people are not this stupid. But this is alarming. This is what they are actually saying on the surface, which shows you how out of off the rails this has gotten. Like, you mean like the rabbit hole of how myocarditis is fake news? The rabbit hole about how there's going to be vaccine passports? The rabbit hole about every other thing they sweared was fake news until it turned out it wasn't? How about this, for example? Great article from Sonia Elijah. Startling evidence suggests biotech and Pfizer falsified key data. Part one, February 4th. Evidence has emerged casting serious doubt over the authenticity. And you guys have already seen this, by the way, at least the, the cursory discussion I had with Jessica Rose. Emerged casting serious doubt over the authenticity of tests carried out by BioNTech, the marketing authorization holder, and Pfizer, the pharmaceutical company, to prove the fidelity of their product by demonstrating that only the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2 is expressed in cells by the nucleoside modified mRNA Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 injection otherwise known as BNT162B2. By the way, again, the, the original, like this is the, still the stuff they're giving people despite that recent vote. They're not giving people commercial. They're giving people, even the booster they made still has the Wuhan strain. So ask yourself how it makes sense. They would argue that shouldn't be happening anymore, but yet vote, they're going to give people the booster instead of anything else. Well, that's contradictory seeing as how it still has the Wuhan strain. It, it's causing people to have autoimmune problems. It's, it's causing all sorts of things. It's causing antibody-dependent enhancement over and under active immune systems, all sorts of things. But it says several Western, several Western blot tests were conducted to evaluate the protein expression of the mRNA in HEK cells transfected with the vaccine taken from the different lots. Using this technique, the expressed protein showed up as highly unusual-looking bands. Certain independent scientific experts have described the Western blots as the smoking gun evidence, particularly the, the duplication of the results, which is the same thing we're getting from the, the Pfizer trials that are being reevaluated, showing you how dangerous the reality of the findings are, despite the fact they lied about what they found, which suggests that BioNTech and Pfizer falsified key data as part of their submissions to the European Medicines Agency and the FDA for securing emergency use authorization. 
and later marketing authorization approval for their product. The bombshell evidence was dropped without so much as a ripple in the sea of brewing scandals washing up on the shores of the behemoth pharmaceutical company and its partner, Biotech. However, some in the research community have taken notice and written about the scandal known as on social media as Blotgate. Their indemnity status, which was written into their purchasing contracts and signed by many countries, would cease to apply if this was proven. Now, that's one of the main reasons I wanted to point this out today, because I just had this great conversation with Jessica Rose, Blotgate and the unknown risks of truncated spike proteins, which is what we're talking about. The, the, the interesting part about this is that we know that with the combination of the basic indemnity that's been given to them, but the point being that they have the approvals as well as the recommendation for the channel schedule, which essentially gives them impun- immunity going forward. If, unless it's proven, willful intent for fraud or fraudulent misrepresentation. Now, that's a hard thing to prove. To, to prove not only that, it was the, it, the manip- that they were wrong, but that it was in fact on purpose. That's when you get into fraud or willful intent. That's hard, especially with a broken system that's completely simping for everything Pfizer and everything pharmaceutical today. But it's important because should this get proven, which I think it's very easy if we have an honest system, then they no longer have that, even if they fall into the categories of that. So that's a very important thing. And potentially that this very discussion could be the one of the most important ways to do that. As it says, the fraudulent-looking data provided by Pfizer with regards to the quality of their novel mRNA vaccine also raises the salient, other salient questions. How did the copy-and-paste data sail through the radar of the regulators, right? You know, the FDA and these groups that are supposed to be checking this who have the ability and the knowledge to know that these things are not right. I think that's a clear, obvious question. They, didn't, they went through because they let them go through. How did the Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences, a highly regarded platform, publish the same fraudulent-looking data Plenty of other peer-reviewed processors out there would know this doesn't look right, and still did anyway, and presented the in, the, in a Pfizer-funded paper written by Pfizer. What proteins are being expressed in human cells from the, va- from the, from the vaccinal-modified mRNA other than the spike proteins they tell you they're supposed to be producing? Why has no genomic sequence of the expressed protein of the mRNA vaccine ever been published? I think we know. As it says here, the Western blot data submitted by the marketing authorization holder, Biotech, was in response to the regulator's request, which became a specific obligation that needed to be met, secure approval. This is where this all is basically coming out from. They said that they do not appear to be Western blots at all. This, this is what they normally look like, even though they were claimed as such by, by Pfizer and readily accepted by the regulators and published. No questions asked, even by the platform, the Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Now, this is what normal blots look like. They're different sizes in all possible ways. This, as you've seen in the one we just did right here, versus the one back here, is what Pfizer submitted to the FDA. And the FDA blindly approved. Look at these things. Now, even if you don't understand what they are, knowing that this is what they're supposed to look like, completely inconsistent and sporadic, and yet literally verbatim over and 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 over exactly the same. It's like they want to be caught. Notice the perfectly square bands and perfectly horizontal rows with no smears whatsoever from these Western blots. A PhD chemist from Hong Kong with mRNA research experience provided them her with the following material, which strongly suggests Pfizer's Western blots were fabricated. 
Similar evidence, basically what they're saying is they took a, a one version and copy and pasted it over and over. Similar evidence by the same chemist who was presented in a blog by another anonymous expert known as a Midwest doctor. Below is a zoomed-in image of the row of the protein bands. Notice the perfect row of pixels. Authentic Western blots would never look like this. I mean, they're exact. It's not, it's not, it's, it's, the, the argument is it's not possible. Outside of a fake. A counter-argument, of course, is that Pfizer Western blots were not done manually, but were automated. This is where the protein samples are loaded into a microplate. The samples are electrophoraced in, in, in capillaries and digital simulations of the results are then provided. A comparison of automated Westerns to a conventional one can be seen below. Still, it's not the same. But the point, another anonymous scientific expert known as Jicky Leaks who's one of the people we referenced in the discussion with Jessica Rose, commented on the Pfizer Western blot scandal saying this, quote, they, they automated Western blots are never used as a definitive experiment in a lab situation. They, they are used in certain purposes, merely computer representations of electropherograms and not Westerns. So even if they are not fake, they're not a, they would not be considered a verification of any experiment. It's like putting out a photo of a Picasso and saying that's proof that you have the original Picasso. Who would believe that? Well, interesting side note, probably all the Twitter files people, right? But it says, well, the regulators obviously did. Pretty damn telling. Now, if you want to hear my discussion with Jessica Rose, PhD, it's, I think this is huge. And I think the reason it's not getting as much traction, even among independent media, is because it's confusing. People don't really understand what this is, but it's just one of many pillars of how obviously this is a scam we are being lied to now sonia elijah who you should follow post something else out interesting on the twitter connection where she goes funny how the tweet about my recent bombshell report is showing up as unavailable twitter what's up <laughs> of course no response from elon because they don't care about the you know only when the big people respond the point is this keeps happening as we keep showing you tweets unavailable or you can't respond or makes it look like they did it themselves this keeps happening so people then you're saying, I can see it and so on. But anyway, the point is, this is everywhere. And just to make that clear, this is happening. I post a, a, a link from RT. I, I thought Elon was a free speech absolutist, right? But here's what it says when you try to click on it. Help keep Twitter a place for reliable info. Find out more before liking this. Do they do that with the Wall Street Journal? New York Post? New York Times? CNN? Fox News? No, of course not. So they're, they're the same things apply right now on Twitter, just like before. And it's a game. It is the U.S. propaganda machine versus everything else. They, the game is they make you think it's left versus right. They don't care about that. It's about everything else. So this is continuing to happen while they pretend that the, the everything's different now because I got my account back or so on. It's clearly still being controlled. Here is Twitter back to suppressing bit shoot videos. Same thing right now. Don't look at it. It's all dangerous and bad, despite it going to the general bit shoot homepage. Or how about Off Guardian? Same thing. These went away for a minute. Now they're all back. Off Guardian is not trying to steal your personal information, guys. I know and respect this team, not personally, but in the context of work. But the point is, this is a gate. This is suppression, guys. This is suppression. Maybe, I mean, how long are we going to keep pretending it's an old employee or the FBI or whatever else? Probably both of them and probably on purpose. But let's not pretend that we know this is the same thing that never stopped. Now, in the context of the bigger point about the falsified data, this is why this is not up for debate. Please check out my research, my review, my interviews with Brooke Jackson. All the way back in December 2nd, 2021. In fact, as, we, as I proudly point out, the very first platform to interview Brooke Jackson in, 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 video, in person in video or in video. 
And, and even, even still right now, the importance of her case is barely even seemingly understood and clearly still being suppressed because it's paramount, guys. Now, I actually invited Brooke Jackson back on coming up in the next couple of weeks to, to discuss where they're at now. Because, guys, this is huge. First one we had, Pfizer whistleblower exposes cover-up calling vac- excuse me, vaccine data into question. At this time, the information she provided, the provable data that we have, not this one, uh, where was it? All of this stuff we had in here that she sent me, all these documents we have. Guys, this is directly from... It proves everything she's saying. She has literal documentation, internal emails. In December 2021, she was proving on this interview that the company, Ventavia, with Pfizer, were lying about what happened, covering it up behind the scenes while outwardly saying Brooke was a liar. It's amazing it can be that easily proven. And we're, this, is how it is, this is why it's so difficult for independent media today. Because you can have the smoking gun. doesn't matter. You know, unless some of the quasi-independents out there that are sack-selling their souls to be, are going to jump on it and give you half the story. And then it becomes breaking news, breaking news 36 months later. Over and over, that keeps happening. Here is the second interview, February 11th. Pfizer reveals concerns with data integrity vindicating previous claims. Frustrating. Now, another very important study that came out in regard to myocarditis. This is a huge study, guys. This is actually one of the most important, in my opinion, because it's actually being pointed at as the opposite. This is how this is being played today, where you can find the conclusions seemingly arguing the opposite of what's being found. Now, excuse me. Excuse me. All right, so Tracy Hogg points this out, MD, PhD. Thank you, that's where I saw it. New Nordic study. Follow-up through late, early Winter, early spring, 2022. Almost five times more cases of post-vaccine myocarditis than post-COVID myocarditis. Over 10 times more in 12 to 24 years old, year olds. Then you've got almost double as many heart failures and death than, than post-COVID. And I'll show you right now. British Medical Journal. But she's got the, the link, the images, so you can check it out for yourself. But guess what they found in the conclusion? So this article, as you can see, is from February 1st, 2023. Weird how the corporate media hasn't pointed it out, right? Clinical outcomes of myocarditis after SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccination in four Nordic countries. Population-based cohort study. Huge, random, rather peer-reviewed. Now, you will see some outlets pointing at this, but they won't show you the study, and I'll show you why. Here's what it says. The objective, to investigate the clinical outcomes of myocarditis associated with injections, with the the virus, if you believe that's there, compared with with just naturally occurring myocarditis. Now, I do agree with comments people have made about this in, in the context of how basically the myocarditis considered just generally occurring could be, you know, you could argue either of them really, but definitely could be vaccine induced, but it doesn't get called that. That's a fair point. Now, the point is those three categories. Now, it says heart failure or death from any cause within 90 days of admission to a hospital for new onset myocarditis. That's what they included. So just to make sure that's clear. Not, they, they basically put out, they, they, they look through the information and got heart, heart failure or death from any cause. That's an interesting point right there. So they, they 
after being admitted to the hospital within 90 days of being in the hospital for myocarditis. So they go into the hospital for myocarditis and then die from heart failure from something different. That gets included because they're you know, arguing that maybe it was connected and so on. But just so that's clear, there's a whole scope here. Now it says in, two, in 2018 to 22, so you have a four-year study, 7,209. Oh, and that, that's an important point as well. That's why you're going to have predominantly in, the, in the, the three groupings, more in the general myocarditis category, because this was there was two years of this before it ever got into COVID-19 discussion, right? So 7,292 patients from 2018 to 2022 were admitted to hospital with new onset myocarditis, with 530, or 7.3%, having myocarditis associated with the injections, mRNA, COVID injections, 109, or 1.5%, with myocarditis associated with COVID-19, and then 6,653, or 91.2%, with just conventional myocarditis. So ignoring for the moment that potentially some of the 91% of the conventional could be overlapping on the other two, just taking at face value what they show you here, and the first point, you have... 7.3% of people who got myocarditis because of the injection versus only 109 or 1.5% of those who got it after the the COVID-19. So right there is the first point that they keep screaming at you that is more prevalent after COVID. Well, there's another study saying that's not true. Then it gets into more important stuff. It's at a 90-day follow-up. So this is so arguably this is the first point. Well, I don't see. I don't know if that means ninety days after the ninety days here, or that is the ninety days. You, it's same, same point either way. The point is after that, sixty-two. And remember here going forward that the way they break this down in this order is going to be vax injection, COVID, and then naturally occurring. They list them in one in one row and then say respectively, right? So in this case, after ninety day follow up, sixty-two, nine, and nine hundred eighty-eight. So sixty-two vaccine injections. Nine after COVID, 988 after naturally occurring. Patients had been remitted to hospital in each group. So right there, you're seeing 62 in that group after injection and only nine after COVID. 62 of the people of the 530 went to the hospital and only nine of the 109 went to the hospital. Again, it's, it's undeniable. So you're much more likely to get it after the injection, according to this study. You're much more likely to go to the hospital after the injection, according to this study. Then, it's, and then it just breaks down relative risk, showing you 0.79 relative risk because of the injection, 0.55 relative risk because of, the, because of COVID. But then it says, and this is the most important one, the one that Hogue was pointing out, at 90-day follow-up, 2718 and 616, Patients had a diagnosis of heart failure or died. That means 27 of the injected group had heart failure or died, and only 18 of the COVID part of it had heart failure or died. And understand, that's why they break it down in relative risk reduction, because they're comparing uneven numbers, right? So the point is, it's still the same. They're still showing you the risk reduction. So in every possible category, it's very clearly slanted in the direction of the injection being more risky. But they still end up saying, compared with the myocarditis associated with COVID-19 disease, myocarditis after vaccination with SARS-CoV-2 vaccines were associated, it said, wait, um, compared with the myocarditis association with COVID-19 disease, 
and conventional myocarditis. Myocarditis after vaccination with SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccines was associated with better clinical outcomes within 90 days of hospital admission. It's a very weird, confusing way to write that. Myocarditis after vaccination with SARS-CoV-2 mRNA vaccines was associated with better clinical outcomes compared with Oh, okay, that, I just, it's weird. It's, it's compared with this first part. Anyway, I'm confusing myself. So basically they're saying it's better to get it from, the, to, the vaccine is better. Same thing you're hearing everywhere. How do you make sense of that with the numbers we're looking at right there? You can even go to the next part of this and it seems to say the relative risk is higher between vaccine. It's higher on the, uh, uh, the, on the vaccine side than it is, or rather on the COVID side than in the vaccine, right? But then how do you make sense of that if it says right up here, the relative risk is 0.79 versus 0.55? It's just, and the bottom line is this information is clear, and that's why it comes down to this. Regardless of what they're saying there at the end, it's undeniable. Based on their study, that's what we're finding. They had twice as many people in that group who had heart failure and died or also died. And just to make it clear, what they're kind of saying here is that, yes, it's less severe. So get, so get the vaccine, bottom line is what they're saying. But don't forget that that doesn't just end the story, guys. This is from NIH, generally about myocarditis. And all it's saying is non-filament, meaning non-serious cases of myocarditis, have a mortality rate of 25 to 56% within 3 to 10 years, owing to progressive heart failure and sudden cardiac death, which we keep seeing, especially if symptomatic heart failure manifests early on. So even the ones that keep dismissing as minor and not serious, that inc- potentially increases your mortality by almost up to 56% over 10 years. Then we also have the part here, April 15th, peer-reviewed, random-controlled trial, continuing to, oh, excuse me, just peer-reviewed, post-COVID-19 infection was not associated with either myocarditis or pericarditis, but here we are, where they continue to push this narrative, despite the fact that most of the evidence seems pretty obvious that this is a slanted thing, very heavily slanted to one side. And here is one example that they're continuing to sidestep. Football injury likely tied to the death of Air Force Academy cadet, according to the autopsy. This is where it gets into the game of how it's nearly impossible to see vaccine, to to find the vaccine cause what you find after an autopsy. You may find something, but it's impossible to know if the vaccine was the reason it happened. Probably the reason this is the vector that they're using today. But again, the point is that they go with a really ridiculous conclusion. February 1st, the autopsy report from an Air Force cadet states that 21-year-old Hunter Brown likely passed away from a pulmonary thromboembolism, totally one of the most clearly associated problems with the injection due to deep vein thrombosis. Also, very clearly, there's endless studies. You want to look that up to connection to the vaccine, you'll find 14 studies about it, likely tied to an injury sustained during football practice. Likely, meaning we don't know for sure, but we're going to go with that. Suffering a medical emergency while on his way to class. So this wasn't during the football experience. This, they're literally claiming this kid hurt his foot and then died later while walking to class. Had completed, uh, basically Brown is his name, had completed a back-to-back winning seasons of football. So the guy is clearly athletic. Now here's what the, the autopsy, this is what the, uh, the cor- uh, coroner said. Based on the history Scene investigation, autopsy, virology, and toxicology findings, it is my opinion that Hunter Brown 21-year-old white male died as a result of what we just said, deep vein thrombosis resulting from Liss Frank injury of the left left lower extremity, his foot. The overall findings are consistent with this being an accidental death originating from an injury sustained during football practice several weeks prior. 
Now, my God, am I saying, no, is it possible? Sure, anything is possible. We are watching the obvious, the, the, the risk that we now know based on their own studies. As high as 1 in 800 of having a serious adverse event. That's, that's death, hospitalization, permanent disability. And we are pretending that that is less likely than what they're saying here. Do you know what this is? Guys, this is literally a foot injury. Also known as the Lisfranc fracture is an injury of the foot in which one or more of the uh, uh, metatarsal bones are displaced. Seriously? Let's take a shot in the dark and see. Oh, guess there's no mention of thrombosis in the Wikipedia page. What about even just the word heart? Oh, weird. No connection. So you're literally talking about the displacement of a a bone in your foot. And that somehow relates? How about if we just search for Lisfranc injury pulmonary thromboembolism? The only thing you are going to find, imagine that, is the articles about this kid. You, I don't see a single anywhere reference about the connection between this injury before COVID or even right now and this kind of connection. So think about that. How can they possibly make that argument, guys? Because they, I guess they're afraid or their job depends on it or they're completely brainwashed with the COVID narrative. This is shocking to me. And again, the stats are important because we can show you that the hypothet- the risk specifically of thrombosis, as member Dr. Bakhti called out right in the beginning, but or just a general risk of a potentially deadly serious adverse event, one in 800. Or even let's just take myocarditis where we're talking about the Pfizer study or see one in 10,000. It's way more than that. Compared to something like this, which is seemingly like a one in a million, I don't even know because I can't even find any literature on the connection. But they're going to they're gonna lean into an excuse that you can't even connect versus something we can prove as possible. That's the broken nature of where we are right now. And that's why this article is really important. From Just News, Just the News, from colds to commotio cortis, medical pundits reaching to rule out COVID backs in health scares. Otherwise lying. February 1st. A cold scent of vegetarian, yoga-practicing, non-smoking, middle-aged cable news anchor who runs seven miles three to four times a week to the hospital with heart inflammation twice for several days each. That's the one we just showed you. Literally claiming the common cold, which does have some prevalence, caused her to have myocarditis, despite the fact that you could prove the risk is way, way more likely from the injection she's claiming she's had four times. A form of cardiac arrest overwhelmingly caused by a projectile to the chest of a teenage athlete apparently nearly killed a pro football player on a routine tackle, despite the fact that we've talked about this in depth and we're talking about specifically a ball hitting a direct point, not on the shoulder, but right over the heart. And yet this tackle was shoulder blades on shoulder blades designed to stop this exact thing, not in over the heart with a routine tackle. They know they're lying. And plenty of experts have come out with this saying how irresponsible it was that they yelled it was this commotio cordis before they could ever have known, then pushed it anyways afterwards. Celebrity health scares in the past month have prompted fast and sometimes far-fetched explanations in the media and medical community, if you want to call them that, seemingly to avoid the feared explanation popular on social media, COVID-19 vaccine injury. Not mentioned... Uh, Vosvon is only a few years older than the under 40s at highest risk of post-vaccination myocarditis, right? So even the publicized data shows you that this very person is at much higher risk than what they're saying it is. The CDC knew of this association when the COVID vaccines were first authorized, but left that off the vaccination surveys because it's honest, right? Because they're not trying to hide something, right? Why would you leave it off if you knew it was there? Because we are all being lied to. And I think everyone sees this right now. 
The bottom line is they are reaching to explain this stuff. And meanwhile, there are experts coming out of the woodwork. This is from this is from Denmark. Rejected outright. It creates vaccine resistance. According to a Danish medicines agency, so the government, guys, there have been 70,000 plus reports of side effects from the corona vaccines. Disappearingly few are upheld in their complaints. Meaning these people are being hurt by this and they're saying, we don't care. Chronic uh, ulcers, I think. Inflammation of the pericardium, inflammation of the heart muscle, that's the perimyocarditis, and facial paralysis are just a few of the side effects for which patient compensation has paid compensation as a result of the coronavirus injection. And it does not surprise Camilla, Camilla Fogged, Forged, Forged, it's an interesting name, who is a professor of vaccine design at the University of Copenhagen, that it is precisely the side effects that stick out. She says, the expert, professor of vaccine design, there are known side effects of the mRNA injections. It occurs relatively often to young men. So it does not surprise me these are side effects. It's just crazy how different this is than what you'll hear on Fox and CNN. I would probably also think that the dose has been a little too high for young men. It's a side effect that we only see discovered after they started vaccinating young men. Yeah, what a weird coincidence, right? In 2021 to 2022, patient reimbursement has received 3,200 applications for compensation for side effects to medicines. The vast majority related to COVID injections. What a weird overlap. Almost like exactly what we're seeing in Bayer's. So I guess these COVID-19 conspiracy theorists are perfectly aligned across the world and doing it all at the same time, right? Or just possibly different. It's hurting everybody all the same way around the world and they're all reporting it the same way. Yeah, shocking, right? Compensation has been paid in 84 cases. 84. While 966 have been rejected. What a crazy, ridiculous, guys, that's incredible to me. Christine Stabel-Ben, who is a professor at the Clinical Institute SDU, believes the number of applications for compensation is lower than the real number. Just like we know everywhere else, in the UK and the US, it is a fraction of who's actually out there being hurt. Less than 10% get their complaint approved. Everybody sees this, guys. And not only is it not stopping, they're getting ready to push again. It's It's coming back. Now, from a purely insurance perspective, this is important. It doesn't mean you can prove that it's happening, that this risk he's going to describe is in fact exactly because of the injection. And it's exact. I do agree with that. His point is that, as it says, top insurance analyst finds a 7% increase in aggregate mortality. So when, t- when taking a general look at it, comparing it to the shots given to the individual, it, it breaks down to an, a, a 7% increase per shot per person. It's just from of mortality which perfectly aligns with everything else we're seeing. That's mind-blowing. Together, an analysis that uses CDC data from the United States that compares the vaccination status um, ranked by the number of doses mm. across regions in the United States and then compares that to, whether, to the amount of increase or decrease in mortality this year versus last. Mm-hmm. And if the vaccine was helpful... Well, if the vaccine was neutral, there would just be no relationship between these two things. Mm-hmm. If the vaccine was helpful at reducing all-cause mortality, you would see that the more doses a region, you know, state, state of Vermont or Maine or, or Hawaii or, you know, Connecticut or something, someplace that's pretty highly vaccinated, you would see lower levels of mortality right. year over year because people got more vaccines than in other places, which who didn't do as much for whatever reason. Um, and you would see a, an improvement and you would see a line that slopes down to the right. Instead, when we did that analysis, and we cut it a number of different ways, we did it by different type of city and region, and, and we did it by uh, age group as well. So, so you really can't argue that there's some kind of, you know, to do it that many different ways, and it's all easy, you can look at it all, 
it, it shows you that at the very least they're not trying to game it like you might expect the CDC and the FDA to be doing where they, they roll out da- data from the wrong time of the year and only selectively look at certain cities. And, and it's just ridiculous how they play this. This is, as far as I can tell, doesn't mean still always question everything. But it seems to suggest that this was done in a very objective way. Right. So we did some thoughtful to make sure there wasn't a bias in it. But no matter which way you do it, what you end up seeing is, is the chart goes, the line that you create, a regression line, goes up and to the right. No matter which way you do it. Think about that. I would challenge you to do that with any body of data. And if you get the, any way you put it together, you're being shown to have an increase in mortality. Think about that. Which is to simply to say that the more doses on average you have in a region within the United States, Man. the bigger increase in mortality that region has had in 2022 when compared to 2021. And so that is an aggregate statistical tool that largely, I mean, it exactly confirms the conclusion out of the UK data. It's a different way of doing it. It's a totally different data set. But ultimately, it leads to a very similar mathematical conclusion, which is a really unfortunate one because, you know, obviously hundreds of millions of us have, 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 you know, either personally or our friends and family and all society have to now deal with these consequences of what are the long-term health consequences relating to these, you know, and I'm, I'm obviously hopeful that we can, as a society, start to focus on those. Now realize this is just a generalized kind of aggregate number, right? So it's, it's if you, one person could have a 50% increase, one person could have none, right? Talking about all sorts of variables like lipid nanoparticles breaking down and not delivering the instructions, which arguably should be better. But again, we've talked about truncated spike proteins and all that stuff. And so there's so much unknown, right? But the point here is that this is g- increased risk in a general sense is what we're talking about. And so I, you, I don't know how we can keep denying all of this stuff. I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about the average person out there who hears this and yet goes and gets the booster because the government says so, you know, I mean, the data, this is why this tweet's important. It's out there, guys. I've never been in a position like this, at least as long as I've been doing this, where it's not where we're debating about some unknown factors, which we are doing that too. What we're talking about here, that these injections are deadly for everybody is verifiable. It's all present, including using Pfizer's own early data and current peer reviewed data. It's unbelievable. As Dr. Simon Godek points out, speaking to CMO England, Professor Chris Witte, of course. Hey, Chris Witte, in light of the recent data, how is it possible, as he sits here and weirdly doesn't blink like some kind of weirdo, <laughs> guy creeps me out, but is, how is it possible that you continue to advocate for the potential lethal booster shot? Do you not fear personal consequences, or have you become so deeply entrenched in corruption that this wouldn't matter either way? Because the point is, the data is, unden- at the very least, you should go, well, let's pause before we can verify that that's not true. But no, no, just keep going because that's all it's really about. Here's the WHO telling you this is not going away, that we're only going to keep doing this forever, seemingly. And that, guess what? That's the point I keep making. We, may, we need to make sure we get 100% of the people we pretend we're trying to protect by reaching herd immunity. Forget. Oop, that's not the right one. Hold on one sec. Did I miss that? I guess I did. One second, guys. You're doing good about having these lined up. Oh, you know what it is? I don't think I downloaded that. One second. I just want you to hear one part of this that's important. And this is, I keep making this argument. Oops, that's not right. I keep making this argument that the whole point about herd immunity that they sell you on is that, okay, well, we need to do this because there's some people in the population that just can't get injected because they're at risk or because they don't work or they don't have the same immune response or blah, 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 right? Okay, well, then the point would be then why you don't need to give them stuff if we're doing this to protect them. Okay, so but then this whole point has been going out of their way to force seemingly inject those people first. 
So my point continues to be the same. Then how does that make sense? If those people are the ones that need to be vaccinated first, then why are we trying to vaccinate everybody else to reach herd immunity? And why do we have to worry about people that have natural immunity or people that aren't at risk or blah, blah, blah. It just, it's, everything is coming to pass right now where their their narratives are getting laid out to dry in front of us. And we're beginning to see the contradictions in very, very clear color right now. Want to end this emergency in every country on the planet in 2023. And we can do this. So what we are asking... Well, it didn't ever really happen, and it's already been over. If however we look at this, but see, what they want to pretend is like they're gonna now we're we're gonna succeed. They're setting themselves up to pretend they beat it in 2023. Asking all member states, all countries around the world, to do is to reassess their situation, have a fresh look at what you're doing, and look at what needs to be adjusted. So we need to strengthen the systems in countries around surveillance. <laughs> okay, right. So it's not are we pretending are we pretending the governments are not trying to do that. Like, so the argument is the governments need to do more surveillance. No, the point is that the peoples of the governments pushed back against all of this. We don't want to be surveilled. We don't want to be tracked like the CDC is doing to people. We don't want that. We don't want your dangerous injections, right? So the argument is always that it's like, oh, we just didn't do well enough. We didn't get enough out as much as you were screaming, give me one. I'm over here. Equity. That's not what's happening. They just love to pretend like it's them failing about getting to you as opposed to you running, screaming, and then dragging you back to them and going, yes or no, is your choice, but you don't get to say no. We need to strengthen the systems in countries around sequencing. We need to strengthen the clinical care pathway so that any individual, if they are infected with whatever they have, flu, RSV, COVID, they you know, interesting choice. get into that clinical care pathway they receive that antiviral as quickly as possible. Oh, interesting. So now that's what we do, right? What happened to all that in the beginning? I guess now now we have Paxlovid, which is only hurting people, hurting their livers, barely works for anybody under 65. And, and then the bottom line is, this is, as we pointed out, Pfizer-Mectin. They are pretending they've, they've hijacked Ivermectin, which is way more effective, way safer than what they're giving people, and giving them Paxlovid instead because it's theirs and it's probably doing the same stuff. On top of the fact, there's examples of Paxlovid causing what they call rebound. This is a game, guys. Everything they're talking about is increasing the same things. More surveillance, more testing, more control. That's what they're saying. So we prevent the hospitalization. If patients need hospitalizations, we need to optimize that care with the right therapeutics, oxygen, <laughs> ventilation. So right. Of course they go oxygen. The very, the very two things that are the most in question about the way that COVID-19 went down. There's plenty of other things, but that's where they go. We save lives. We prioritize and focus our vaccination campaigns to ensure that we reach 100% of the at-risk groups. 100%. 100% of individuals need to be boosted who are over 60, who have underlying conditions, who are immunocompromised, and our frontline workers. Hey, that's interesting, right? Isn't that interesting that she pushes that exact point? Because as we know, as we should know by now, not only does their own data say very clearly that in immunocompromised people, the safety of the vaccine is not known, or that frail people with comorbidities or otherwise known as elderly or over 60, same thing, that the safety profile of the vaccine is not fully known. Or autoimmune problems, same game, limited information. Or just in general, interacting with other vaccines, they have no idea because they haven't done the tests. Is, has not been performed. Or just long-term safety data, we have no idea. But totally, though, let's focus on all the ones that it could hurt the most. Give it to them first because they need to get it so we can then protect them by getting it ourselves. 
How does that work exactly? Realize that she said 100% of people over 60, 100% of the elderly, the ones that they don't know it's safe for. How does that make sense? Then ask yourself how it possibly makes sense when the argument is that the whole idea is to protect those people. As it says, herd immunity protects the at-risk populations. But I thought that's why you wanted to get them injections first. These include babies, immune systems are weak, and can't really, it's just, it's, it's speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Now, there's an argument made about how they may still need the injections, but then still have a suppressed immune system. And the bottom line is everything they're doing is only making this worse for them across the board. We are being gamed in every possible way of this. And I don't think they even care that we could see it. Here's Meet the Press talking about Dr. Michael Olsterholm explains that protecting older populations from COVID should be the focus going forward. And what do they mean by that? Well, getting them them first, <laughs> getting them multiple shots right away because we don't know if it's safe, right? Because we don't know, we haven't done the test, get to them first. It's the same thing everywhere, guys. My goal, he says, is to see everyone get COVID, get a COVID twice a year in this country, but have it be nothing more than a common flu or cold-like illness. That's literally what he said. The goal is to have everybody get COVID twice a year. You know, the very thing they swore and, and sold you on taking this one thing and going back to normal. Sure sounds like normal to me, doesn't it? Forget the government policy and all this stuff. If you were advising a business of a couple hundred people, what, what's a realistic COVID policy when it comes to testing, masking, uh, and physical attendance by workers? Well, let me just say at the outset, my goal is to see everyone get COVID twice a year in this country, but have it be nothing more than a common cold like illness. Like, let's, let's be clear. I don't, even, who get, I don't even get a common cold twice a year. I mean, hopefully that's because I'm, you know, healthy living, right? But think about the idea that so it's normal to get a common cold twice a year. Is that really the case uh, for me or to get COVID-19 twice a year? I mean, isn't the whole point that the more that it catches and spreads, the more possibility it can mutate? I mean, this is the goal now. Think about how this makes sense or doesn't at all with everything they sold you on to begin with. This is, I guess, mission creep of COVID-19. That would be really a victory. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do right now is eliminate severe disease, hospitalizations, and deaths. And clearly those over age 50 make up the largest group where that occurs. Yeah, because you're injecting them first. Seems to make sense. And the fact that they're also elderly and those die more in general, or the fact that they are being given and treated and removed and acted on with the, when really the thing that you're telling them are at risk from, COVID-19, is very, very low risk for almost everybody global risk of points i think it was point zero 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 three front of 19 i think it was point zero i don't want to quite forget but gen- less than the flu for every single person across the board so there i think getting the bivalent vaccine is really important the data are clear and compelling that that can reduce the likelihood of serious illness hospitalizations and deaths is that the case or not at all guys you tell me is that, did we literally just look at the studies that argued exactly the opposite and were peer-reviewed otherwise, that the bivalent increases your risk of serious adverse events, that the bivalent increases your risk of getting COVID-19, that the bivalent increases your risk of literally everything, it seems, or has less effectiveness and stops working quicker? I mean, my God, this is ridiculous. On top of the fact that you're talking about a bivalent shot based on the BA1 variant and Wuhan, and then pretending that this can be gleaned over to BA4 and 5, and then I guess even more so to, to CHXBB, and then I guess even more so to XBB15, and then even more so to CH11. Yeah, see how far this is? How ridiculous. That's what just happened. So it, 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 there's this huge pushback against the first part, 
eight mice and no human trials. Where is that now? We're now we've now gone from from XBB XBB15 to CH11 from BA1. Now that is four different variants removed without any human trials, without any more work being done, just pumping out the not even pumping out new sequences, just giving you the same old shot. Okay, if during the flu season they give you a shot based on the wrong variant that it works like 5% of the time. If that's what, they're te- what they'll tell you right now, then how does it make sense to take this shot based on wrong variants right now? It doesn't. It's hurting people on top of the fact that it would hurt you even if it was the right strain. This is crazy to me. Uh, if you're going to be in public places, wear a, you know, good respiratory protection in 95. Nope. Has not statistically significant reducing transmission. I'm going to do a mask thing again at some point, but we just had a massive Cochrane Review meta-analysis showing you 78. Make sure you hear me on that. 78 random controlled trials that found that there was no difference between cloth and medical or medical and 95. There is no statistically significant reduction. Guess what? Like we've been saying from the very beginning, because we looked at the science. But here's a, an expert lying to you, or he doesn't know any better. And if you do get ill, make sure you get medical care immediately so that you can avail yourself to the antivirals. For many people under age 50, we have to acknowledge that this is a disease that is not likely to cause severe illness at this time, (laughs) that many people are moving on with their lives and uh, doing what they did before the pandemic. So I think really trying to protect those older people would be what I would tell any workplace uh, right now. My God. So we're back to the beginning. Are you going to shove them on one room and then let them die again? It's just pathetic how these people either can't learn their lessons or just don't care. But the point is, guys, this is going to transition. We see this coming. They are going to begin, especially as they're not pretending this is tapering down. Well, they got to blame something. They're going to blame long COVID. This is going to be the game. It's already coming out, at least in part, unless they declare some new problem. Here is Rashid Tlaib telling you that this is happening, despite the fact that I'll show you right now that we can't even prove that it's happening at all. Mr. Speaker, in the state of Michigan, there has been over 16,000 COVID-19 cases just in this month. Cases. Completely unverifiable cases that we all know. PCR test false positives. I mean, a number of other things. We, haven't, we, have, we still have examples of places where people are using symptoms and location and settings to argue that it's an assumptive case. That's still happening. Just to keep you safe, though. But then it turns into this. Nearly two people... 200 people have died. Death and illness. I guess we'll assume that she meant from COVID, but even that, same point. Who knows? Seeing as how most of the population have some injections coursing through their veins, it's kind of amazing that we pretend that's not a relevant point. Illness and viruses should not be politicized. In both our Wayne and Oakland counties, we are still seeing nearly 3,000 cases per week. So the pandemic is far from over. How many deaths again, though, right? Completely irrelevant when you talk about that. And then you understand that they're conflating flu and pneumonia and all sorts of other things, as they admit, if you just look at their own documentation. We have residents being hospitalized and families having to say goodbye to their loved ones because of this deadly virus. Which is the same thing, sadly enough, that happens every single day everywhere in the world, all the time. Every single day in this world, in this country, everywhere you look, people are dying from viruses or whatever you want to call it and having to say goodbye to their loved ones. This is emotional manipulation. It's sad whenever somebody dies. This pandemic is not over. The pandemic is still preventing people from going to work, school, disrupting every... Ah, and there's your continued consequences. Well, no, that's not doing that. The government is doing that. ...everyday lives. 
By ending resources and policies that have surely saved lives, we are leaving our residents and communities out to fend for themselves. They cannot do this alone. We must continue to provide resources to co combat COVID-19, also the impacts of long COVID, from testing to treatment and care. Well, you just heard the WHO. She's just saying the same exact thing. That's all it is, just more invasive action. That's all they want. Simple. Now, I said the illusion of long COVID will be used to hide vaccine side effects, to shift the blame away from the alarming excess mortality away from the jab, and to maintain the illegal and unjustified state of emergency put in place by Donald Trump. Now, that seemingly could change, it seems, but I argue there will be, I mean, look, it's as simple as this, guys. The moment that they want to, they can just initiate another emergency. It's been very clear that they don't have any kind of controls or regulations or anything. The, the White House can just do that. The HHS can just do that because they're told, and we go forward. So either way, the point is that, yes, they're going to call long COVID. Imagine long COVID becomes a new thing, a new variant. Well, they're just going to reinitiate the same thing. I'm willing to bet you something will happen and it won't even end. That's my, that's my guess. But Steve Kirsch points out, but only the vaccinated are suffering these long COVID symptoms. Have you noticed that? Now, I, I mean, I've, I've argued, like, I do see the same thing. I can't prove that. To be clear, you know, I don't, you can't talk to everybody and confirm everybody. And even then, they don't know for sure. But I do feel that on my, perspe my perception that I, I know very few people out there that have never taken these injections that have suffered anything for that matter. Very, very few. But here's what he's linking to. Sean Rickard points out that uh, CTV and CP24 are reporting that 60, you know, corporate media reporting that 61 million people worldwide are suffering from long COVID. I mean, how do they even know this when they haven't even defined what this is? And coincidentally, they're displaying the same symptoms that those who were injured by the vaccine are exhibiting. And that's very true. It's good to see the Ministry of Propaganda earning their state funding. But the point is, guys, long COVID, which is right now still being investigated, even the, the most recent science.org investigation was saying it could be one of these three things. They don't know. Just like sins and sads, it becomes an, un, an endless catch-all. Son, adult, or infant death syndrome, it literally means when you look up the definition that we don't even know what caused this, it's a catch-all for unexplainable death. But yet, that people get diagnosed with SIDS. How is that even possible? Look it up for yourself if you don't think that's possible. It's happening right now. Long COVID, even if you think it's true, is guaranteed to be used to conflate other things that are happening right now. And she asked the same question. If you've had five mRNA shots... And Omicron, right? So ignoring for the minute, wherever the, this is kind of my point. So someone who is in the no virus crowd is going to be like, but viruses don't exist. You're all lying. It's like, hold on a minute, buddy. I'm not even saying they're real. I'm just saying, think about this in the context of the argument, right? If you had five mRNA shots and whatever they're calling Omicron, and then you develop arterial, uh, arterial fibrillation, would you call that long COVID or long booster? I mean, it's a simple point. You've got five things in your body they've admitted can cause certain things. Then you get whatever they say is out there, and you blame the thing. As a, you're, you're, talking one, you're talking five to one here. You, I mean, the point is simple. You can see how people are choosing to lean into what is easier right now. Now, here's an interesting point on this. Long COVID caused by hidden viral res reservoirs. Now, here's the study. Cut. Oh, man, I don't, I'm starting to get really frustrated by a lot more sites these days are seemingly everyone's doing this now. All these sites auto refresh. I can't see that as anything other than a way to hide something or to hide updates. I don't know. Anyway, it drives me crazy. 
I'm realizing it's not the app itself. It just these sites just refresh and it removes it. But the point was, if I can remember where it was, this is why it frustrates me because it's perfectly lined up. Uh, in the long COVID patients, higher levels of T cells. So, you know, remember the immune system works with like memory B, T cells, antibodies, and all of them work together. Right? Antibodies being in a crude kind of discussion, being the, you know, the kind of the, the front line of fighting the current problem, the memory B being somewhere it kind of stores that memory, the T cells do, another way also attacking and fighting and so on. There's different T cells as well. But the point is to remember that right now these injections are what they say producing a clinical response. One, that means they don't even know if it's the right response, as we played many times. They have no correlation between the response and actual protection. There's the assumption that it's helping. And then can you repeat the, the second question? I mean, obviously you have a lot of data now. What is your correlative protection is? Everybody's measuring antibodies. They're probably relevant, but as we know... That's a long question. We need a quick answer. <laughs> I would say there is no established correlate of protection. Be clear. That's directly from the FDA and Pfizer. Okay, so the point is, we have that producing antibodies. That's all they seem to care about. But what we do know about these things is we've talked about dis, dis, uh, lymphocytopenia, dysregulation of the immune system, right? You've got hyper and uh, over and, and underactive immune system problems, both of which are being caused by these injections. Probably peer-reviewed science and even acknowledged and super, super, super rare, but still being acknowledged by the government and the companies. So what I think is interesting is that we're, ta- we're pointing out right now that it turns out that people that are saying have long COVID actually seem to have higher levels of SARS-CoV-2 T cells and that in and of itself is being correlated with specifically inflammation. It says indicating T cells could be driving other symptoms. Now, what's more likely here? That your body and its normal immune system is going to just for some random reason cause an overreaction of T cells or that the injection that we know causes problems in your immune system that, that might be causing problems in your immune system. What do you think? I mean, it's, it's, it's infuriating that we need to play this game. It's the same thing about saying... This guy just had myocarditis. It must be commotio cordis. And you're going, okay, and I'm not even using Demar Hamlin, just for hypothetical. And I'm going, well, wait a minute. Don't we admit that the injection can cause myocarditis? And it's like, well, yes. It's like, okay, well, couldn't it be that? No, not possible. How do you explain that? That's happening. It's like they don't want to accept that it's at least possible, is it not? So my point is we know the vaccine is causing all sorts of immune dysregulation, immune overreactions, everything. One of that would be more T cells being produced. And yet we then choose to lean into an undefined, unexplainable thing. You see my point? I mean, this is a choice, guys. The investigators concluded that the elevated frequencies of these T-cells in long COVID sufferers are associated. So not remove long COVID from that. All they're saying is that they see, they've found, they find, they concluded that SARS-CoV-2 T-cells being overproduced are associated with increased systemic inflammation and decreased lung function. Look at that. The study is the first to determine T-cells specific to COVID-19 may affect lung function. Now, not, not specific, but overproduction of those T-cells, which is not something that just naturally happens. The findings may shift COVID-19 treatment recommendations, leading to a polarization of vaccine, prioritization of vaccines, of course, because that makes sense, and antivirals that target long symptoms. 
So the assumption that that's the case, we're going to jump right to the other thing that might even be causing it. But who cares? Not possible. Our findings hope to help change treatment focuses. I think that's it in general uh, was the last part. Uh, Palmer and his team applied. Oh, that's right. Hold on. Make sure I didn't miss anything. Oh, right. And what antivirals are we talking about? Of course, Paxlovid, obviously. The very thing that seems to be causing more COVID-19. But that makes sense for long COVID, right? (laughs) My God, this is a cartoon. Palmer and his team applied for NIH grants to continue this research. Of course they did. If approved, they would investigate washing T-cells out of the lungs with a non-invasive procedure, (laughs) enabling them to compare the cells. So they're going as far as to start finding treatments to remove those T-cells instead of just stopping the thing causing it, in my opinion. But here's the study itself. And it's interesting the way that this is it's written now. It's peer-reviewed PLOS pathogens. SARS-CoV-2 specific T-cells associate with inflammation and reduced lung function in, post, in, in pulmonary post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2. Compared to RC, which was resolved COVID-19, participants with respiratory PASC, which was, or it's just right here, I just saw it. Am I blind? Oh, right there. Post-acute sequela of SARS-CoV-2, so like ongoing, you know, long COVID, essentially. So they're saying, compared to recovered COVID, participants with long COVID had between 6 and 105-fold higher frequencies. That's a lot of these specific T-cells, CD4, CD8 T-cells, in peripheral blood and elevated levels of plasma. It, it, it says CRP and interleukin-6. Now, it says statistical analysis stratified by age, number of comorbidities and hospitalization status demonstrated that none of these factors affect differences in the frequency of SARS-CoV-2 T-cells and plasma interleukin-6 levels measured between long COVID and recovering COVID cohorts. Taken together, these findings demonstrate elevated frequencies of SARS-CoV-2-specific T-cells in individuals with pulmonary long COVID are associated with increased systemic inflammation and decreased lung function, suggesting SARS-CoV-2-specific T-cells contribute to lingering pulmonary symptoms. Now, you could take that in all contexts. But again, what seems more likely to be causing an overreaction of T-cells or an overreaction of your immune system? I think that's an obvious question. I'm not saying I know for sure. As always, we're objective. We could argue that this thing could be causing it too, based on what they're telling you is possible. But this is obviously also a possibility. So that being said first, and again, I argue statistically speaking that the thing that seems like a high possibility and has hundreds of peer-reviewed studies finding that it affects your immune system is probably more likely the thing than some unknown reaction to the thing that we've been studying for three years, right? I mean, come on, it's, it's silly. Then we need to include the other studies I pointed out, and I'm going to include a couple of them here. November 8th, 2021 peer-reviewed, gigantic study on JAMA Network. Cut to the chase, go to the full conclusion, and read the whole thing. It's very telling. It says, the results of this cross-sectional analysis of a large population-based French cohort suggest that physical symptoms persisting 10 to 12 months after COVID, and don't forget, that's the only thing that they have for this. If you've got certain levels of symptoms within a certain time frame, they call that long COVID. There's no test. There's, it, I mean, and realize the symptoms they point at or can be caused by any number of other illnesses. So in their own definition, they're allowing other possible things to be called long COVID. They know that. That's probably by design. But it goes on to say, persisting 10 to 12 months after suggests that those kind of symptoms 
persisting 10 to 12 months after COVID-19 pandemic first wave may be associated more with the belief in having experienced COVID infection than with actually being infected with COVID-19 because of propaganda, guys. This is although our study cannot determine the direction of the association between belief and symptoms, our results suggest that further research regarding persistent physical symptoms after COVID-19 infection should also consider mechanisms that may not be specific to SARS-CoV-2 virus. From a clinical perspective, patients in this situation should be offered a medical evaluation to prevent their symptoms being erroneously attributed to COVID-19 infection and to identify cognitive and behavioral mechanisms that may be targeted to relieve these symptoms. You can't misunderstand what they're saying, guys. They believe it's psychosomatic or at the very least is just as likely. And what happened? Nothing. I mean, literally the day after, the week after this came out, they were pushing hard on long COVID and never stopped. So are they trusting the science or are they ignoring everything and pointing at what they want? I'm still over here saying it could be both. I, but my opinion based on the science is very clear, but I'm objective. I mean, it's, it, we have to be. Whether or not we want to be, we have to be. December 1st, 2022. This one's important. Wait a minute. It did the same thing. Son of a gun. Hold on, guys. Very, very, very frustrating. Give me, so this is important. <laughs> I, want to, I want to yell right now. Okay. Association of initial SARS-CoV-2 test positivity with patient reported well-being. Three months. Oh, that, that's right. So let me get. Uh, results. 1,000 patients. 722. Out of 1,000 patients, 722 of them received a positive COVID-19 result and 278 of them received a negative result. A total of 282 of the 712 participants in general, so 39% in the positive COVID group and 147 in the COVID negative group reported persistently poor physical, mental, and social well-being at three-month follow-up. Okay, so this is clear. I'm trying to make sure I have it all right in the right spots. What they found is that more people who had a negative COVID test reported physical, mental, or social well-being negative feelings after three months. More people on, or which one was it? Let me see. I'm trying to make sure I'm trying to do this on the fly. Yes. Okay. So 53% in the COVID negative group felt bad, long COVID type things, but only 39.6% of the COVID positive group did the same thing right there. Now, I mean, it's just, this shows you, it doesn't mean that the 39% didn't have long COVID or whatever you want to pretend. What it shows you though, is more people in the side that were showed not have it reported feeling the same thing. So how do you make sense of that? Now, you could, of course, argue that there are false negatives because I'm honestly objective, again, because we can argue that there are both. There are false negatives and false positives, and that can be taken in to anybody being you know, objective. But the bottom line is, this is not as easy as they want to make it out to be. After adjustment, it proves well-being were statistically and clinically greater for participants in the COVID-19 positive group versus COVID negative group, again, after adjustment. This, it's the same thing we see everywhere, guys. I'm trying to see if I didn't have anything else highlighted. The same point, though. 
It's just, it's, it's not, it's hard. It's impossible to miss the reality. Overall, the point is you keep seeing that there are a portion. Now, even if you want to break down the percentage or after relative reduction, risk reduction, that you can argue that the risk is higher. What they're still pointing out is people that don't have COVID-19 are reporting the same thing. Now you could argue that's, that's vaccine side effects or that it's psychosomatic. The bottom line is this is not everything they're pointing at. I, I'm not even trying to argue that there's not what they say there is. I just don't see the evidence for it. And finally, I've shown you this one already. Based on Google searches, it appears that long COVID apparently only exists in Anglosphere nations. Ireland, Australia, UK, Canada, New Zealand, USA. But apparently nowhere else. I mean, look, look at the, the, the... Why no interest in Japan or Sweden, Italy or Brazil? Like, why, are no, why is nobody talking about long COVID in Turkey, Japan, Paraguay, Brazil, Peru? All countries that have the same things going on. Why does that make sense? Because the government's not pointing at it, guys, because it's not being called long COVID, because it could be anything could be called long COVID because it's an undefined catch-all. It just can't be any more clear than that. <sighs> Very frustrated by this. You know, anyway, I don't want to keep saying that. Yeah, this, I mean, things are refreshing on me. This was there. Anyway, gosh darn it, guys. Now, to finish up here, I'm thinking, actually, that I might just want to wrap on that interest of time that other stuff highlighted is probably gone as well we'll come back to this in general i think that's a good place to end on in general for the title the point we were going to get to to finish well i'll just include it in the next show is that we we now have these people basically you know for all intents and purposes the anti-vaxxers of one they're setting a false press a false premise here acting like we're not even going to fight anymore because clearly their, their propaganda has won. And the point that somebody makes down here is it's like, look, the, if, if 80% of people got injected, how are you going to pretend like anti-vaxxers won? This is pathetic is what it really is. Ah, let's just read this last part and I'll save this till the end. For all material purposes, the anti-vaxxers won. Ah, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm realizing the time is more important. I, I do think this is going to get frustrating as we go through it. But again, I will reference this on the next show because it's important. But this is the same thing as the amnesty conversation and whatever else we've talked about, right? It's time for scientific community to admit we were wrong about COVID. But that's not what they're doing, guys. It's not an admission. It's a patronizing sidestep to argue that we didn't, we weren't clear enough in our information because you're too dumb to understand. And all they want to pretend is that we won because our lies succeeded. How do you pretend peer-reviewed science and the evidence we're producing are anything other than facts or at least potential information? All they want to do is, they, these are, this is the Scott Adams argument, the Ben Shapiro argument. These are pathetic people who can't admit that they were wrong. Shocking, he works for NBC News. But as Lisa points out, how it started, how it's going. All right, so all the things he's claiming we lied about are things that they've now admitted. Ask yourself about transfer of vaccine to breast milk and across the placenta. For either of those to occur, significant amounts of it would have to circulate in the blood, which is not the case. Okay. Ask yourself how Vicky Mail, why she thought that. Even though you could look it up at the time and find evidence it was happening. But no, and this is, this is 2021. The point is, she trusted what she was told. That's not what real journalists do. Then, of course, 2023, vaccine can get into your blood in very small amounts. That's not true either. It's not very small amounts. It's a lot, and it's dangerous. And what she's doing now is just the next lie. They know they're caught, so they lie a little bit less. It's going through your body. It is continuing to be made, and that's why we keep showing this. One of the peer-reviewed studies that do, in fact, very clearly find that. 
sustained synthesis of the spike protein. And yes, it goes into your blood. We've shown you peer-reviewed science finding. Look at that. That just refreshed right there. <laughs> I don't know what's going on with my, maybe it's my computer. I don't know. It's not supposed to be happening. All these sites aren't supposed to be auto-refreshing. I don't know what it is. The point is that how are we lying or wrong if that now is the case? You said we were conspiracy theorists when we said it could get in your blood. Now you admit that it can get in your blood and you still call us conspiracy theorists. How does that work? Here's Orwell's post. Fact checkers, right? Fact checkers. There's no evidence it gets into your blood. Rare vaccine-related blood clots. Time, and That's not even the right one to bet, honestly, for that. There's proof that it's very clearly circulating in your blood right now. mRNA and spike protein. Here's one. No link found between menstrual disorders. Now they find links between menstrual disorders. Or CDC's not seen a link between heart inflammation. Oh, that one aged well. FDA to add warning about heart inflammation. So it's amazing. Were we all just guessing exactly right over and over and over? Or were we reading the scientific studies that the experts weren't and pointing at it and then finally they have to admit it? You tell me. Bottom line, the evidence is undeniably clear. It has been the entire time. It just matters. It just depends on what you choose to look at, what you care about. If you care more about due diligence and objectivity and discernment or getting patted on the head by the government and having your neighbor think that you agree with them. You know, it depends on what you care about most. I tend to care about the people who don't have a voice, the children being killed in Yemen, the children being killed in this country because of the injections. I care about the people that don't know they're being manipulated. That's what I care about. And I'll continue to fight for that. I'll continue to fight for you. Thank you for being here. As always, question everything. Come to your own conclusions. Stay vigilant. Is brought to you by Pfizer. CBS Health Watch, sponsored by Pfizer. Anderson Cooper 360. Brought to you by Pfizer. ABC News Nightline. Brought to you by Pfizer. Making a difference. Brought to you by Pfizer. CNN Tonight. Brought to you by Pfizer. Early start. Brought to you by Pfizer. Friday night on Aaron Burnett out front. Brought to you by Pfizer. This week with George Stephanopoulos is brought to you by Pfizer. This letter report brought to you by Pfizer. Today's countdown to the royal wedding is brought to you by Pfizer. And now a CBS Sports update brought to you by Pfizer. Meet the press. Data download. Brought to you by Pfizer. This portion of CBS This Morning sponsored by Pfizer. On how to find the hidden sugars in the American family diet. Sponsored by Pfizer. Bill Gates' advice on how to combat mistrust in science at 60minutesovertime.com. Sponsored by Pfizer.